I'm Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I am Tom, a liaison officer to the truth, Bionic. That you are. Yeah. I believe that you are. Only un- sad thing is that's an unpaid position. That's okay. It doesn't matter. Yeah. I mean, it's an important one. Ladies and gentlemen, it's great to be back with you for another week, another special guest on the Future Quake Show. This week, we have a gentleman by the name of Lynn Osanic, who is the host of a special radio show online called Black Op Radio. Uh, and he was a close companion for many years, an associate with Colonel Fletcher Prouty, uh, a U.S. Uh, war hero, uh, someone who was right in the top echelons of our military industrial complex, uh, and was a whistleblower. And our show this week talks about Colonel Fletcher Prouty, an insider, insider whistleblower of the bogus Cold War. Uh, and this will be a thought-provoking show. Uh, I think you'll really appreciate Mr. Osanic and the information that he has tried to preserve. Uh, from Colonel Prouty, and so with no further ado, uh, here's Leno Sanic, and we'll be back to right up here at Future Quake. Welcome to the Future Quake show. I'm Dr. Future. And I am Tom, very interested about this subject and guest, Bionic. Well, as you are most weeks, but particularly this week, we have got uh, a tremendous topic to talk about mm-hmm. and a great guest this week on Future yep. Quake. This week, ladies and gentlemen, we have uh, Leno Sonic, the host of Black Op Radio, uh, and a close confidant with Colonel Fletcher Prouty, uh, who's going to be talking about his legacy. And our topic this week is Colonel Fletcher Prouty, insider whistleblower of the bogus Cold War, as well as much more than that. Uh, yeah, we're going to cover a lot of information today. Uh, Mr. Osanic, am I pronouncing your, uh, your last name correctly? Is it Osanic or Osanic? Osanic. Osanic. My apologies. Uh, well, I want to welcome you uh, from our neighboring country, uh, upwards of Vancouver Way, and I just want to, in BC, uh, Mr. Osanic, I want to uh, tell you I appreciate you so much you making time to inform our audience about this important information uh, by your former colleague, uh, the late Colonel Fletcher Prouty, and just want to welcome you to the Future Quake Show. It's a pleasure to be on. Well, um, you know, I know you're a, a fine, very distinguished radio show host yourself, and it makes it even more difficult for somebody like you to come on a, a low-rent operation that we have here at Future Quake. Oh, uh, not at all. <laughs> we're, we're still in the remedial class. We haven't been yeah. promoted yet. Um, Stone Age Radio. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, we, we're the sweat hogs of radio, as uh, we call ourselves. So it's nice that somebody knows what they're doing, so please feel free to adjust as you see accordingly. Yeah. And, in fact, speaking of that, uh, to begin our discussions today, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself and your radio show, Black Op Radio? And, and as well as the nature of your involvement with Colonel Prouty. Sure. Um, Colonel Prouty worked in the military for 23 years. He worked in the Pentagon from 1955 to 1964. Uh, he was a rare individual. He was um, a liaison officer, a focal point officer between the CIA and the Air Force. And his department cleared everything that the CIA wanted to do with respect to the Air Force. So anytime they were doing clandestine operations, they would let him know, they'd brief him so that he could clear everything with the Air Force. In this uh, you know, situation, he got to know the players, the real shakers and movers in the agency, and, and what, what fun and games they were doing in, in uh, covert operations. Now, I was um, 
just interested in this era of history, and I wrote a letter to Fletcher uh, just through his book publisher after reading one of his books, and, and I thought, I'm just an amateur historian. I'm very interested in the real truth of what's going on here, and I don't have an axe to grind. I'm not a writer from any magazine. I'm just interested. Can you answer some questions for me? And uh, a couple of months later, I got a reply. I sent him uh, 20 questions, and um, I think the fortuitous, I mean, kind of a, a, a good move was I didn't, not one of the questions were who killed Kennedy. Mm-hmm. It was all about how, how does this work? How, what situation would the Joint Chiefs of Staff be? And how, you know, all these like spokes of a wheel all around the whole situation. So if you understood, you know, the framework of what happened to that era, you could see how a president would be removed by powerful people. And he liked that very much. And um, we became friends. And then after a certain period of time, uh, he began giving me so much information that he had that I felt I could repay him back by making a, a CD-ROM. <laughs> and um, that was to collect all his articles and photographs and letters and things that he had. And I, I put them together so that in one place, everything was there available for him. He wasn't really um, up on you know, computer uh, programming and the Internet was just young then. Right. So... Uh, we had a good friendship. And then after a while, when he started giving me all the details and documents and, and you know, paperwork, everything he had, we really became close as, as we, we put this thing together. We started doing a few talk shows, interviews to discuss this. Oliver Stone's film came out then. And uh, after that, he became a little ill and he passed away of natural causes. Uh, in the meantime, since I had done a few interviews on my own, I thought, well, maybe I'll just continue with this by talking about some of the things that Fletcher had illuminated to me and things like that. And I work in a recording studio, so that's how I was able to facilitate starting Black Op Radio. And Black Op Radio is just an extension. If you have an interest in the JFK assassination, secret governments, you know, any things like that, uh, that's where I interview guests each week to talk about that. I, I'm not talking about um, was the moon mission a, a fake or mm-hmm. is it really Bigfoot or things like that. It's just history. It's um, typically around a security state. Uh, you know, it just kind of a, it was a growing up thing for me. That um, mm-hmm. right. it's kind of like taking some kind of university course where you really figure out how the world works by Fletcher being a rare individual that he was someone who did not have to sign an oath of secrecy to the CIA. So he was at some liberty to discuss what he knew, but he only discussed firsthand uh, knowledge with me. And um, it just, uh, he, he was a very rare individual. He had a lot of integrity. He had an higher, a higher oath of, uh, uh, to his country than to the Defense Department, I think. Mm-hmm. And so that's why sometimes when he would let some of these revelations go, he felt that he, I asked him, you know, he said he was leveling the playing field when he sees so many different frauds and lies on TV mm. week after week. He right. thought he should let a few writers or people like that know that there's another side to the story. Well, l- let me ask you regarding your radio show. How could our listeners uh, listen to your show? Oh, it's on the web. It's called blackopradio.com. All one word, blackopradio.com. And you go there and I host uh, at least a year's worth. There's probably two years of shows up there all the time. It's mm-hmm. a weekly show. And then... Uh, you could buy the archive. I've been doing it for 10 years. So there's wow. actually right now 10 years of shows. 
you make us seem lazy. We've been only at this for five and a half. So uh, five and a half is a long time too. I know. Well, you're an example of dedication, and you're a role model for a lot of our listeners who believe there's something important going on with our country, and it's worth the sacrifice of your time. And unless you've put together a show and all of the reading that's required, all the background search, the scheduling, the editing, unless you've done all this, you can't appreciate what's involved in it, particularly week in and week out. It seems like a neat idea for a little while. But to stick with it for a long period of time is very, very difficult. And I just want to thank you on behalf of uh, your fellow citizens in America that, that you dedicated time that you probably could have spent doing something more lucrative or something to line your pocket. And instead you devoted yourself to try to help out your fellow man, your fellow citizen. And, uh, you know, I consider that as patriotic as storming a hill. Uh, and it's, it's a much longer uh, period of service that you do. Uh, to do something like this to make America a better place and to protect its citizens. Well, you know, it's America and the whole world. I mean, it's it's kind of a history lesson. You have to decide that some of these things that people talk about, you say, well, that could never happen or that wouldn't. It's uncomfortable to get into it. And then as you look into some of these topics, you see it's more devious than you first imagined. You see the same people popping their heads up the guys who were maybe in Watergate or in something else or the banking scandal or whatever. The same players are are in this, and if they've found a way to uh, circumvent the rules or the system, you know, um, it's going to go on. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how to add a term for these guys. He called it the secret team, people mm. that were kind of outside the government but working in the government that knew the loopholes how to get around. And uh, people talk about black budgets and, and funding, and no one really knows how, how much funding is going on to some of these uh you know, things even like Blackwater today or, you know, the CIA or covert mm-hmm. operations. I mean, the Cold War is over, evidently, but the Pentagon is still going full bore. Well, we turn over a few of those rocks here and there on the Future Quake show. Uh, and, of course, we have a, a spiritual view to, to what it indicates of what's going on with this. But uh, I have to ask you, because um, we've been asked this question ourselves, year in and year out as you dedicate yourself to doing this, you know, there's a lot of people out there that say, you know, even if you are right, does it really matter? You know, it's not going to change anything. These people are all powerful. Not enough people are going to care. What motivates you to put all the time and effort yourself into studying this, doing your radio show and the other services that you do in this area? Well, when I started, I thought it was a, a tribute to, to uh, for Fletcher's great disposition mm-hmm. by him spending time with me that I would pay him back in some way. Mm-hmm. And and um, I run his website. Uh, it's called the Colonel the L Fletcher Prouty Reference Site. Colonel Prouty Reference Site. If someone searches for that, but I run his website and I run Black Op Radio. Um, I mean, I I I do it just as an interest. So I think that once you start looking into the world around you, it's hard to just say, well, I'm just going to go back to watching football or right. things like that. You know that. Uh, I don't feel I'm doing, you know, I would say that I'm doing the bare minimum. So by me helping a few people find some of the things that are, are hard to find, it's like someone else, uh, you know, j- just doing good work. So, uh, you know, uh, the motivation is, it, it, I mean, on a lighter side, you might even call it a hobby, yeah. you know, but, uh, but I would call it an interest, just an interest of how the world works. Right. And, you know, once you start looking into it, it's, it's, you know, 
like I was kind of implying, you can't just turn your back to it then. You, you know, you can, of course, I don't get, uh, you know, bound too much with it um, because I do have other interests that I do like right. watching football games and things like that. But, right. you know, when people are talking about something, you like to know about what really is happening. Well, and you, you mentioned uh, the Colonel Prouty website. Uh, that is Prouty.org, right? P-R-O-U-T-Y right. dot org? Yeah, yeah. And and you have materials they can get there. We'll mention at the end of this show, but they can get materials there, uh, some stuff yeah, downloadable, some they can purchase, different things, as well as going to Black Op Radio. Yeah. That's well, correct. there are CDs and, and there are, um, you know, DVDs and videos and things that you can buy, but there is a lot there that is, you can just listen right. for free. There's That's a lot right. of audio. There's video clips. There's documents. There's, uh, gee, Fletcher, in the last year he was alive, we had a monthly commentary. So people would send in emails, and he would answer them, and I would post those. So there's a lot of questions that maybe someone new to this topic might have, you know, like who was Colonel Prouty or why didn't mm-hmm. somebody, you know, try to get him or, you know. Right. Uh, a lot of these things are already there. So it's, it's you know, it's really just a tribute to Fletcher. And then, by the way, everything I did collect, him on, collect about him, you know, is on a CD-ROM, and that's that. But mm-hmm. I'm... You know, I'm not pushing that. It's just, you know, if you have an interest, it's available. You know, speaking of Colonel Prouty, his his resume background reminded me a lot of that Colonel McBragg character from Bullwinkle, you know, who always getting into these huge adventures and huge things. It's hard to believe if it weren't true because if there was ever somebody who was in the center of the action of the Cold War, it, it was Colonel Prouty of, of every form leading up to it. Uh, as we entered into the Cold War and beyond, uh, well into it. Can you share with us just a few more crucial things of his experience and why we should consider him a credible resource in, in the provocative information he shares? Well, first of all, the reference that people do not know anything about Fletcher Prouty, like I said, he worked in the military until he retired after when John F. Kennedy was killed. Now, in the Oliver Stone film, JFK, there's a character they called X, and he's played by Donald Sutherland. Mm-hmm. And in that movie, Donald Sutherland sits down with the Kevin Costner character, Jim Garrison, Fletcher Prouty and Jim Garrison. They sit down on a park bench, and Fletcher just tells them kind of matter of fact, this is what was going on with the military with regards to banking concerns of Vietnam and Asia and, uh, you know, just the whole military-industrial complex that he was inside of there and uh, that he recognized everything. And uh, I think he was urging, you know, Jim Garrison, you know, don't look for a lone gunman and a lone nut. This is a big, clever, orchestrated effort here that uh, the enemies of Kennedy had him removed. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, you know, Fletcher knew what he was talking about. Now, as far as anecdotal uh, stories. I mean, you'd probably have to be a little more specific. I have a few notes we have that we can well, discuss. On can things, I? But I can. Yeah. Can I share a few things just as an outsider when I looked sure. up his background for my listeners? And you correct me if I say any of these wrong. And just okay. keep these in mind when we consider: Is this gentleman a legitimate person to be commenting on these fantastic claims? He, he's winner of the Le- Legion of Merit, uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff Commendation Medal. He was the personal pilot of General Omar Bradley. Uh, he flew the U.S. government uh, teams to Saudi Arabia to confirm oil discussions or discoveries for the Cairo conference. 
he he had special duties at both the Cairo and the Tehran conferences, which really set up the Cold War world. Flew Chiang Kai Shek's delegation to Tehran. Um, he uh, if I could if I could pause right there for a yeah. moment. Uh, what you're illuminating is that uh, among other duties, Fletcher was a VIP pilot and. He flew the top generals and in VIPs around. So in this case, that he had a very good personality, you know, disposition. Mm-hmm. So he was well liked by everyone. So when one general said, you know, Proudy and his team flew me, get them again. We like this guy. Yeah. So that helped his promotion into the Pentagon, and um, to get into some of these different areas that he he wasn't in previously. But this was the idea that he had flown so many important people around, being a VIP pilot. That um, a lot of people knew him, and a lot of people got along with him very well. Well, he knew who these people were, where they really went. I'm sure he had some contact with them even then. Uh, he flew. Oh, and he yes. Va- he evacuated. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I was going to say that he often told me that he had a co-pilot with him, and as soon as the plane got going and everything was okay, he left his co-pilot in charge, and he went back to sit there and talk and be briefed by the generals, and they were explaining to him, you know, we just finished this operation, this is how we did it, or this is what we did here, and this is how we did it, you know. So, right. um, and this is a very, uh, very special once in a, you know, once in a his, history opportunity that was uniquely the experience of uh, Colonel Prouty. He flew and evacuated the British commandos from the Guns of Navarone incident. Um, really? He he flew into wow. Japan at the surrender with like the first entourage uh, with uh, MacArthur's bodyguards and actually flew out U.S. POWs after it. He taught at Yale for the U.S. Army after the war. Uh, he helped establish the Air Defense Command. Uh, he was in Japan through post-war era, through the Korean War era, uh, helping administer there. Uh, worked uh, from 55 to 64 at U.S. Air Force headquarters. Uh, helped direct uh, Air Force worldwide system for support of clandestine operations with the CIA. Uh, and with the, uh, in accordance with the National Security Directive 5412, uh, received a CIA commendation letter and Legion of Merit. Uh, was sent to the Office of Joint Chiefs of Staff um, to uh, assist with the office, uh, similar to the uh, DIA, the D- Defense Intelligence Agency, as Chief of Special Operations, uh, military escort officer uh, to uh, start a nuclear power plant uh, at the South Pole. Uh, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and on and on, a, a director of public affairs, uh, senior director of public affairs for Amtrak uh, during the 1970s. Um, and then he wrote several books. Uh, and, of course, he was an advisor to Oliver Stone in the movie JFK uh, and then was played by, by Donald Sutherland. So that just gives you a few things of this gentleman when you think, is this just some kind of crackpot that crawled up out of a, out of a hole? Now, getting into... The book that I reviewed, The Secret Team, uh, which is available uh, out there for people to get. And, and the reason why I knew to contact you, uh, Mr. Osanic, was that I heard, of all people, Jesse Ventura talking about the book on Alex Jones' show. Hmm. And talking about how it blew his mind. You know, for all the stuff that he knows, here he is hosting a cable show on conspiracies, getting all this information everywhere. And he's reading this book while he's down in Mexico and it blows his mind with the discoveries of Colonel Prouty and singing his praises. Now, that's a Navy SEAL uh, actually giving a commendation to Colonel Prouty, which gives you know further indication about the seriousness of it. Now, his book, as I understand it, has been published three times since the early 70s. 
what has happened to copies of these books? He talks about it in the preface to his books and, and the general access to them via publishers when they were released. Isn't that a story within itself of what happened after the first publications? Yeah, I guess you could call it a story within itself because whenever he tried to get his book published, it seemed like the publisher ran into great problems and was either shut down or all the books were bought up and, and destroyed, and it was very rare to get it. You couldn't find the secret team. Every now and then, someone would be brave enough to try to reprint a few thousand copies, and something would happen. You know, there'd be some big controversy about it. And um, finally, Skyhorse Publishing now has reprinted both of his books, uh, and they are available again. They, they, were were com- available. they were confiscated, right? I mean, they were confiscated by, by according to people he talked to, uh, booksellers, different things like that, by potentially yeah. government agents. Yeah, it's, um, you know, you think if you hear about it happening in England or Russia or some other place right. that uh, a book has been banned and they just went out and got all the copies and destroyed them, you'd think, I can see it happening. You don't think it would happen in, in America or Canada or something, but it, it, it happens, you know. I heard the and same thing. Also, you mentioned Jesse Ventura. I was right. also going to say Governor Ventura. Right. He knows mm-hmm. a fair bit about government as well. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and Governor Ventura says that when he became governor, uh, CIA agents came in. and uh, They asked him the, when he was in Washington. Yeah. They said, hey, why don't you come over here? And they questioned him for like 16 hours. Right. And they said, these are our, our people that we have in your administration. And then when they retire, we're going to replace them. You don't have any say about it. That's the way it is. But I was going to mention that Dr. Stan Monteith on Radio Liberty talked about another author who was an insider in the medical community regarding AIDS. And right. he, he found some awful truth about AIDS coming from military laboratories mm-hmm. and being used as a bioweapon and actually exposed that data in a, in a book. And the same thing happened. The books were bought up in mass, almost mm-hmm. identical circumstances. Wow. And Dr. Stan, I think, is one of the few people actually has a copy of that book. They were they were confiscated. That's interesting. That's not those type of things are not without precedent. Uh Ebola, you know, the virus right. Ebola. The yeah. most famous strain is called Ebola, Ebola Marburg and it's named after uh, a small country or a small city in Germany of all places where a uh, uh Marburg, Germany, where uh Eli Lilly, I believe has a uh, uh, far-out lab where they do all sorts of weird mm-hmm. stuff, and right. that's where Ebola uh, first was found in, I think, the early 80s. So they named mm-hmm. it Ebola Marburg. Mm-hmm. And we tend to think of it as an you know, right. African disease. Right, it just, you know. it just came from monkeys or something. Yeah. Um, moving into the content, one of the things that he mentions very early in the book is the importance that briefing officers have in the military and intelligence communities up and down through the administration as far as them dictating the actions of officials at the highest levels of authority in our government and how that's a critical thing to understand how the secret team works. Can you explain how, how these, uh, these supposed little people in the system really control the system by their control of information? Well, Fletcher uh, made the case that the government had turned from a government that had a war department to a defense department. And after the war, uh, this indoctrination became that it would be very reactive. They would wait for something to happen and then react to it. Whereas before, they thought you should have a leader and say, this is what we're doing, like we're going to the moon or we're doing this, and this is what we're doing. And, you know, here we go, I'm going to lead you. The whole Defense Department got turned around that from the name on, they were going to wait to see what happened. And Alan Dulles, 
this was kind of one of his uh, pet projects that he would have this octopus-like network of agents and, and information everywhere that he would be able to determine um, what we would be going after. Now, what you're making reference to briefing officers is that if you are the CIA and you want to start a, a war with someone, and for instance, we'll call it the Cold War, if you are going to inflate the gross national product of the Soviet Union, and then you're going to tell the president they're spending 10% of their gross national product on defense, we better be spending 12 or 15 here, right? If they have a so many wing air force and you tell them, well, you know, instead of they have 12 bombers, tell them they have 100, you force the president, whoever's listening to him, to take action. So now when you have these daily briefings, if you color the information coming in, and you're in charge of it, and he has no way to, to check that, he has to act on that. And each morning they would have a daily briefing in which the government is energized into reacting to some news they've heard that, you know, these guys have a nuclear weapon, or those guys have something. We have to react to that. Um, and that is, you know, if you read Fletcher's writings, that's, you know, it's hard to elaborate in a paragraph or two, but these daily briefings really color things and you know lately we've heard the story about weapons of mass destruction and all that or you know yellow cake or where do these things come from they come from some um, someone's imagination that wants to provoke something start something and if it's a war real or imagined they energize the government to do it now in these early briefings if they're let's just say they're an hour if you take up the hour the first hour of the president's day in the morning right um, mm -hmm. him and his staff and advisors they all have to react to that and day after day, this just goes on. It's an endless uh, stream of information. And if you are Alan Dulles, the head of the Central Intelligence Agency, and you're really working for somebody else, you're working for different monetary concerns uh, around the Defense Department, around some of your big banking buddies, and if you belong to Sullivan Cromwell and some of these other banking concerns on law firms, you're the board of directors and all this, if they want to push the foreign policy of America, one way or the other, they start feeding in information, briefing people, telling them this is what's going on, when in fact it may be the complete opposite. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And Tom exposing the secret team, Bionic. That's right. Well, as usually as we are on Wednesdays, we're just getting into the information. But the key mm -hmm. point, I think, at the end of today was that these briefing officers that control the information of the decision makers are the real power position. Mm -hmm. So who controls the secret team? Who do they who do they report to and what do they do? Well, he alludes that a little bit. He says there's a separate power elite who the secret team basically just does their bidding. Yeah. And then they, they subcontract the CIA or other people to do their kind of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, I would be fascinated to find out how they have that power. Well, Proucher, I could tell, or Proucher, he knew names. He actually knew people and some of this kind of stuff, which, mm. be very careful what he said, but somebody else we know is Murph who can tell you how to contact us at Future Quake. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or Internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. 
Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Yeah. we got to go. All right. Come back for our next segment tomorrow. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom, Ministry of Truth agent, Bionic. Well, the good Ministry of Truth, not the fake one like yeah, 1984, not right? Like AMSOC. Right, the real one. Room 101 or whatever it is. That's right. That's 172. It. Ladies and gentlemen, it's great to be with you uh, for our second installment this week of our interview with Mr. Lynn Osanic, uh, calling in from Vancouver, Canada, host of the show Black Op Radio, an uh, internet radio show. Uh, and he was a close colleague for about eight years with an uh, American war hero, Colonel Fletcher Prouty, who also was a whistleblower about the people who really called the shots within the CIA, with our government, uh, one of the most compelling writers uh, on these topics out there. If you're not familiar with him, you're going to know after this week. Uh, so we're going to begin our second installment uh, on the topic, Colonel Fletcher Prouty, insider whistleblower of the bogus Cold War. Uh, with Leno Sanic, and so we'll come back and wrap it up here on Future Quick. So, so and let me see uh, if I understand this. Basically, the key is not necessarily to control the decision-making officer as far as to occupy it. You don't have to have your people in the in in the decision-making offices. You just have to be able to control the information that flows into the executives in those offices. Correct. Well, that's one way of looking at it, and in in our time right now. There was, I would say, the extreme embarrassment of Colin Powell when he was up uh, making the case for uh, anthrax and all this stuff. And, it, and if you saw pictures of him holding that little vial, you know mm-hmm. what I'm talking about a few years ago? Yeah. And then you find out, you look into it, the whole thing was made up. Uh, his career was slightly ruined, but he motivated the U.N. and, and American Army and everything to, to take on this whole endeavor. Right. Uh, you know, which case you may find out years later that there never was any anthrax there, or if it was, it was made in a, a military, a U.S. military, yeah. uh, Fort Detrick or somewhere, right? Well, yeah, we, we, had, all right. we 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 had someone who was personally victimized by the scenario you described. Uh, Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson was on our show uh, a couple of months ago, and he was the one who put together that presentation for Colin Powell, and he was relying on CIA data. And shortly after that, after he put that in and sold it to go to war, he found out that the data was erroneous and that he had been intentionally misled and said that he, well, first of all, he wanted to resign the military immediately. He felt so much shame. He said it was the lowest the lowest point personally of his professional career. Right. Yeah. And, and of course, uh, he tries to spread the word of what happened. Yeah, well, yeah. well hats off to you guys for interviewing him because that's a... That would have been a great show, and that really illuminates what we're talking about. Fletcher's talking about back in his time in the 50s and 60s, but this team, the secret team, this thing is still going on today. And so earlier you mentioned why do you still why are you still interested? Because if you don't understand what happened before, you'll never stop it. So the first thing is let's just understand the problem. Let's what's really happening in our lifetime, and then can we be a catalyst to suggest change? Right. Uh, you know, you know it's. That's right. Well, uh, uh, I presume that they have their key people, if in fact, you know, the supposition of the secret team, this is uh, organized in a concerted effort, um, in other key decision-making positions, people who brief the Secretary of Defense, people who 
brief, uh, you know, Joint Chiefs of Staff or others uh, that, that are key decision makers. I'm assuming also that their same philosophy is that in the era of the mainstream media, you can control the opinion of the citizenry by just controlling the information that goes to the mainstream media. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the mainstream media is the one who becomes the arbiter of what reality is to the American public. And so through selectively sent press releases, other information, we've mentioned before, we have a mainstream media that tends to be very lazy as far as their investigative work. And so they would rather just take a press release that comes in on the facts and read it. Uh, they do very little discernment of, of what it is. And these agencies, they can be think tanks, they can be nonprofit groups, they can be actual government agencies or industry. They send these things out and they just read them and then that becomes reality for the public, which also would tend to think why they are so fearful and want to restrict the Internet because it becomes extremely hard in an era of free and open discussion for them to be able to control the information yeah, the public gets. You can't conform the facts if you're... Yeah, is, is, is that a case where, where free and open information like the Internet becomes a, a major challenge to the secret team? Well, I, I really have no way to, to answer that, you, hmm. know, uh, you know, other than the obvious. But I, I, I really don't – I'm surprised that the Internet has really remained as open as it is. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm optimistically both. surprised, you know. Yeah. So right. seeing that, we, we've been told that in Iran and other places, uh, they have blocked Facebook and MySpace or whatever the different, uh, you know, social networks are because uh, there's been some criticism of Islam or Muhammad or someone. Mm-hmm. So they, the whole things have been banned. So you wonder how you live in that other country where there's no uh, free flow of information. But uh, if, it, you know, you're indoctrinated. If that's all you ever hear, you never know to doubt it. Right. Well, uh, re- regarding that, did you have a comment? Uh, yeah. Well, I, I had would, one comment go I was yes. going to make. Yeah. Reply to you guys. Um, you know, being from Canada, I'm I'm often just a little confused on the uh, the um, the conservative view that anything liberal is really negative, and you know, Rush Limbaugh and some of the other uh, guys that are on, on Fox, and uh, they seem to just be a Pavlovian anti-Democrat. They're, they're just when the Republican guy is in, everything's okay, and then things screw up, so people vote for change. They get the Democrat in, and the other guys are saying, everything is going wrong still. You better vote a Republican back in, you know? And it seems to just go back and forth without, you know, if you sit off to the side and you say... You yeah, need a different no, system. You need yeah, a third no party. Change. You need someone right. else. Right. Well, right. There, there are a few exceptions. I'm sure you're familiar with Alex Jones. He is yeah. someone who's come up that has said, look, the parties themselves are corrupt. Uh, they're pandering to a different set of people, but there's somebody behind both of them pulling the strings. I mean, his view definitely would be consistent with what the view of the secret team is. Uh, you know, of puppet masters controlling this game that goes on, this duality game. Uh, and you're exactly right. The challenge gets that much more difficult when you talk about the people of faith in America because they're that much more so, uh, at least evangelicals, monolithic like that. And that's partly what our challenge is here mm-hmm. in trying to get to the truth on Future Quake is to try to get through all of that cultural viewpoint and try to get to what the real facts are. Yeah. Well, that that should be, regardless of what denomination you have of faith, you would say we're dealing with here the industrialized military complex complex or the banking concerns or, or these mm-hmm. other entities, you really should study them regardless of 
uh, other viewpoints because, first of all, you have to understand them. Yeah, you know, if you're going to um, have a worldview grounded in truth, you have to know yeah. what the truth is. Well, if if you go through the archives of Future Quake, you will yeah. see five plus years of just that, and and, right. and what we find is that it is not a Republican problem or a Democrat problem or any of these other kind of things. It is a problem of Good controllers and, and elite <laughs> uh, who who do not have our well-being in mind, and they keep us occupied with those simplistic manifestations, and they go much deeper which is really consistent with, with the secret team. And, and, and speaking of the secret team, can you explain further uh, what Colonel Prouty described these people as being? Uh, what, what, how are they made manifest? Uh, what are different ways in which they uh, appear and how they're used in their agendas, this kind of thing? Um, <clears throat> I'm not quite sure what you mean by that. I'll well, give me, you one illustration of yeah. of how people are promoted into this. If um, if you have someone who's working in the intelligence agency and you want to put him into some other office, U.S. agriculture or the Air Force or, or commerce or anywhere, um, in the Air Force they might say, they might go to a base commander and say, listen, we're going to give you a Commander Jones here and just give him a small office, and he'll have some very, very light duties, but he's there because we're running some covert operations, and some airplanes are going to land with the tail number 1234. The next day, the same plane, 1234, will land, and you'll see a few of these planes with, uh, with what you know are phony markings. If you have any questions, just go see our Commander Jones, and he will clear everything for you. Well, this guy is, is given some duties at this um, base, but he's really an intelligence agent, but he's paid by the Air Force, and they have this idea of reimbursement. So when people go into what they call cheap dipping, where they go into different um, vocations, and you know, in the military or whatever, uh, they're paid by the CIA, but they get an Air Force check, which is sent back to somewhere and, and, and torn up later. But when the head guy of that base is um, promoted up or sideways or anywhere else, the new guy that comes in does not know that this guy really this Commander Jones, is really an intelligence agent working for the CIA. He thinks he's just a, a competent guy working at this air base. And sometimes this guy is promoted, and he ends up being the head of this base. Now, when you, with one phone call, can phone someone and say, listen, I need a plane, we're going to drop off rifles, rifles in some island, and we're going to cause a rebellion, and we want to support them, they snap their fingers and it happens. It doesn't go through Congress. It's not voted upon. So these guys in the secret team have people planted all over the place. And Fletcher said at his time he knew of about 605 bases that were, if not the head man, the second or third down the row had uh, access to the secret team where they didn't have to go through any red tape. And when you heard in Vietnam where there was large, large amounts of heroin and drugs being flown back and forth in airplanes and and Air America and things like that, you go, well, how could that happen? This was a big organization. These guys found out that they could make money. They take that money, and they would fund their further foreign agendas. And it was a, a policy that was not voted on by Congress or the president, and sometimes they didn't even know about it. Well, and it, when it was running smoothly, it just continued. Let, let me ask you something of, of what I gathered of what the secret team is and how they work from reading Colonel Prouty's book. And you correct me if I'm wrong here. What, what I'm left with the understanding is that the secret team is a is a loose knit confederacy, sort of ad hoc confederacy of people of every shape and stripe of 
of common worldview and methodology who there's no organization chart for them. It's not like even the CIA where you actually have directors and groups. These are people who work. They're in, they're in academia. They're in big business. They're in different military places, all sorts of places where they act. Some of their people are within the intelligence groups like NSA or CIA or others, but they work completely outside of any kind of chain of command that is accountable to anybody, supposedly, like in the government. They have their own things. They just use the infrastructure of the CIA or other government agencies as an effective means of doing their bidding and manpower by strategically placing their people in it or having influence to the people in it where you have some people that are somewhat read in or witting to what's going on, some that are partially or completely unwitting, but they use this uh, ad hoc approach to be able to get their long-term agenda done without any kind of tracks to really show what they're doing. Is that sort of in a nutshell? Uh, yeah, and I think you could add that because they use, make use of the military, they can compartmentalize some of their operations where they say you're on a need-to-know basis and you just fly these here, you're going to pick up gold bars and move them there, or you're in a research lab here and you're just working here for a year, you don't tell anybody, and because of the fear of military and non-disclosure, you get people to uh, uh, to not talk about some of these operations and and, uh, and things like I'm thinking of uh, Iran-Contra and many, many mm-hmm. things like that. Well, we just had a story this week that at the end of this week we'll... Uh We'll be talking about the, the, the news story that just came out in the Washington Post about the, the incredible growth of the, the secret spook uh, system infrastructure we have in America and the advent of 911 and how we now have, according to their, their calculations, 845,000 Americans that have top secret clearances and many, many times that they have secret clearances. So you've got a state that almost seems like East Germany somewhat. Uh, but that there's so many resources at play that people only have to know a tiny, tiny sliver of what's going on as long as somebody else can put the pieces together from what they farmed out, their their job and their role and what to do to sort of cover their tracks. Uh, but uh, another thing that really surprised me when I learned about it was there's a case in point of how these things go without knowledge is that when the Air Force, as I understand it, wanted to build a stealth fighter, they invited the normal fighter uh, defense contractors, and one they didn't know about was Lockheed. And what they did not know was that the CIA had been operating their own air force with their own runways for some period of time before then and had built the SR-71 with Lockheed's help. And they had to get permission to be able to go tell the Defense Department that they'd been part of this air force. So then they could bid to make a stealth fighter. Uh, that's that's the story that <laughs> yeah, I've read. Same story, I know. So so you know we have the top brass in our own Department of Defense. We're they not aware that's yeah. sort of a competing military. And as we've talked about in right after a 911 event, we had our our secret op commandos going into Afghanistan, going way behind enemy lines, finding these indigenous sheep herders and people on horseback. Then finding, finding out, out they speak perfect English. Yeah, they yeah. were CIA guys that had been vetted for a long time in programs that nobody in the Defense Department knew about. Mm-hmm. Um, is, are, do these kind of things have the hallmark of the secret team and their kind of actions? Yeah, or the evolution. Uh, you know, they've stepped it up a notch. So I, I guess really with high-tech tools that they have now, 
uh, of surveillance, of, of internet monitoring and things like this. If anything, it's, it's made their control even more powerful uh, to be able to control these kind of things. How, how do um, officially mandated intelligence duties of institutions like the CIA and NSA, you know, the, the, those are the duties they're given to actually be aware of what potential enemies of ours are doing. How does that end up being dwarfed by the covert field operations they perform? You know, the kind of things that aren't clearly within their mandate, but they're going out and sending commandos and people to actually do pretty significant operations in the field. My understanding, Colonel Prouty, that, that really is a major part of what they're doing as opposed to intelligence. How, how were they able to pull this off, and what's the impact of that? Well... I mean, all the branches of the military had their own intelligence and, you know, uh, the Air Force, the Navy, and the Army, and the CIA was was supposed to be uh, a coordination. After World War II, they decided that, uh, you know, the Army wasn't sharing everything with the Navy and the Marine Corps and then the Air Force, and so the President wanted one office where they would all brief the Central Intelligence um, the director of it, and he would come and brief the president, and he would get ever, all his intelligence from one man. I don't think he ever dreamed that uh, uh, somebody like Alan Dulles would would be in there and orchestrate the whole thing and really take it over for his own uh, his own interests. Mm-hmm. And you know, Fletcher made the comment that the, the the last letter of the CIA, the letter A, is the most important. Most important that uh, it's agency and. An agency is working for a client, much like a, a lawyer, you know, working a law firm working for their uh, mm-hmm. client. So, who is the CIA really working for? You know, is it their uh, uh, big corporate interests they're protecting? You know, is that what's really going on, or is it the little person, you know, the citizens of America? And because and, if it isn't, then uh, people better get on this, right? If corporate America is putting down their policy and saying, uh, we don't want this government in South America to flourish, uh, you guys in the agency come up with something and do something and overthrow that government. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's precedent for that, too, of course, with uh, uh, going back even farther than uh, Colonel Prouty, you know, with... Mm-hmm. Um, Smedley Butler. Smedley Butler, thank yeah, you. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing, Mike, yeah. that, you know, back then they used the most more overt thing where, you know, United Fruit Company and these people yeah. would just get an expeditionary force from their own military mm-hmm and get get uh, General Butler in there and his guys to t- knock over some countries. And now they have covert means yeah. with people that we never economic hear about do the man, same thing. If you will. Yeah. Or, yeah, can do economic uh, things as well, too. Uh, so so they have all these things at their disposal. But uh, as I understand it, their, their, their mission was to basically just collect information to inform our leadership of what people are doing. But yet now they are going in and making big changes in other places and countries on their own with very, very little knowledge by the people who we elect, the people who we've asked to uh, to do things on our behalf. Pretty much zero. And, you knowledge. know, I think a lot of people, even if they're suspicious of a group like the CIA, they tend to think of the CIA itself as having its own agenda, maybe through the director, even though those directors come and go, much like the FBI under Hoover. Hoover was there for, what, 50 years? And so they yeah. sort of saw the FBI going, doing basically Hoover's vision. Whereas the CIA, when you mentioned about them being an agency and basically doing the bidding of their client, it's an interesting thing to think about the CIA just basically being the henchman doing the job for somebody else who's having them call the shots. Yeah, I know. And that's that's really what that's it's really about the with the secret team, right? Thing. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. 
Right. And then when you think of a lot of these military people uh, get an early retirement and they go on to be the board of director of some big, uh, you know, Lockheed or something else, uh, they want to be in. They want to know that. Say, listen, we're planning a war. We're going to be funding a new type of weapon. Weapon, uh, you know. Um, uh, yeah, a, a lot of these military guys go on into some other monetary gain. They don't just kind of right off into the sunset. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and that's where they do their triple dipping and things like that uh, that, that go on. Um, I, I got to ask you the big question, and this was even referred to by Jesse Ventura. Um, he, he he sort of gave it away his reading with Colonel Proudy or about uh, you know, Colonel Proudy about what led up to the Cold War, and 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 he said that he was left with the understanding that it was sort of a setup that there was sort of an agreement after World War II of the parties that they would uh, uh, sort of control their own spheres that any kind of confrontations would only be done you know by proxies in the Third World and things like this. Can you shed any light on that on what Colonel Proudy learned as far as this post-World War II world that was set up amongst the major powers? Well, I think that, um, you know, he was talking about the end of a colonialism. <laughs> Sorry, colonialism, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, especially in Asia, um, they were, you know, French Indochina, Dutch Indies, you know, all, all these places. After Europe was going to be rebuilt, they were going to end all that. And um, I think the French tried to, to hang on to Vietnam, and, uh, you know, America wanted that to fail. And they were only too happy to uh, to take over that, and they wanted it for... for I mean, um, can you be a little more specific with your question? Well, I, I, as I was just saying, uh, when, when Jesse Ventura was talking about it, he's read a few more of Colonel Prouty's books, too. Uh, and he said, judging from it, it was very clear. And, of course, Colonel Prouty was around these figures in these immediate post-war conferences at Tehran, uh, you know, you know, you know, these other kind of similar meetings that were held, um, uh, where they basically decided what the world after World War II was going to look like. And you, you had to deal with, uh, you know, Papa Joe, Stalin, and, and the other different power players. Sounds like a pizza man. Uh, yeah, well, that's how he was known. He was the good guy, you know, back then with us. But, um, you know, he well, says from reading, reading his thing was that basically they sort of had an agreement that they were going to sort of allow the Cold War to evolve for what it was and just any kind of direct confrontation would be done through third parties, through pawns basically, countries that were pawns. Um, and, and it really was probably in the best interest uh, of the, the secret teams on both sides to uh, just sort of keep this thing fomented as a Cold War as far as for for war sales and parts and things like this. So, you know, that was the implication from some of his comments of Colonel Prouty's work. Yeah, and I think what you're mentioning is what Fletcher and Buckminster Fuller called the high cabal mm-hmm. and Churchill, the power elite. So uh, you made a reference earlier um, in a letter we were talking about Fletcher here, just about the idea of the Cold War between the Soviet Union and America and how banking concerns would be thinking far through that and as far back as 1972 when uh, there was a businessmen's meeting uh, all these uh, different businessmen were all recognizing that the Cold War was going to end and they should be all lined up and get ready for when the Cold War ends we're going to be spending money and investing and um, you know I think what is it Roy Ash mentioned uh, oh yeah 
the White House Conference on the Industrial World. They had a look at business in 1990. And this mm-hmm. is from 1972, what right. they were predicting in 1990. And um, Roy L. Ash, the president of uh, Litton Industries, uh, mentioned that communism was going to fall and um, it was all these markets were going to be open to uh, people that were there ready for it. And so you better start preparing for that. And it, <laughs> look at 1990, the, uh, the Cold War is, uh, well essentially over but um, right. the only thing I can add is that I think that from Alan Dulles's point of view and some of the others when they had a genuine fear of the Soviet Union that they thought that they recognized that they could not fight with atomic weapons anymore and they were going to try to bankrupt the Soviet Union by a setup a cold war where they would just try to outspend the Soviet Union and the Soviet Union would have to out of obligation keep building submarines and nuclear missiles and that, and finally when they went bankrupt, then, then the Cold War will be over without a shot being fired. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, I think, just, you know, personally, that was the motivation for Alan Dulles and a few of the other people there, that when Kennedy was going to end the Cold War quite prematurely, he said, we all live on the same planet, we drink the same water, breathe the same air, we better start getting along. That sent shockwaves to their agenda. When we had a 20, 30-year plan, to you know, really embroil mm-hmm. the the Soviet Union in a in a Cold War, and um, you know that's just an opinion. Right. Uh, yeah, and they but, had to, you know, they had it, to deal seems, with him. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it seems um, like everything they were trying to do was to uh, trick the Soviet Union into this Cold War to make sure that uh, they were spending, that we were spending, and uh, the bankers made money on both sides of the fence. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future and Tom, Mystery of Truth Bionic. Okay. Um, what, what did you think about some of this information? I think particularly at the end when we were talking about the, the Cold War. And you see, he was there at the meetings where mm-hmm. the, Colonel Prouty was flying in the, the VIPs mm-hmm. when they were doing this kind of stuff. And basically, it was a contrivance, the Cold War. Well, uh, I would be interested in, in exploring it further. Perhaps we should, uh, you know, maybe some Friday just take that stuff, take the quotes right out of the book and, mm-hmm. you know, do it. Well, I, I wish we could have du- dug into that a little more. Yeah, yeah. Well, some of that also is in some of his other writings as well, which mm-hmm. I was not privy to at the time. Yeah. Um, maybe we can get Henry Kissinger on our show. Maybe he could put his cards on the table. Well, you know, he does like to... After he, Bohemian Grove. Yeah, he does like to, uh, to attend Bohemian Grove and do other... Mm-hmm. Sort of things I won't mention. So well, next time difficult after, to get them. Maybe difficult. If we to get, get ourselves into the next World Federalist meeting after he meets that, we could he Sweet. could find out about this because I want to know more about that because if if in fact the Cold War was a big sham put on us mm-hmm. to get us to to justify the United Nations global government the synthesis that's going on, mm-hmm. then a lot of very very wonderful people gave their lives and at least gave their hearts. Mm-hmm. To defend something that was manipulated, that was a bogus thing, or and people should be held accountable, and people now should wake up, and the manipulation hasn't stopped, has it? It's still it going on. It doesn't appear so. That's the they give us another fake enemy. Like, they give us another fake enemy. It's to like hate. you read Shakespeare and you see all of this intrigue and stuff yeah. going on, and then people go, "Well, that happened then, but it doesn't happen today." Right. Yeah. Right. Well, something else that can happen is Merv will come in and tell us how to contact you, Future Quake. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information.
email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, we got to go. All right. Come back tomorrow for our next segment with Lino Sanic. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I am Tom. Uh, call me Colonel Bionic. As in Colonel Clink? <laughs> I know nothing. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it's great to be back with you today on Future Quake. Um, we're getting ready to start our third installment of our special guest this week, uh, Lynn Osanic, uh, host of Black Op Radio. We're speaking to him from Vancouver, Canada. And we're talking about his research associate for eight years, Colonel Fletcher Prouty. Uh, an American war hero uh, and person in the highest levels of defense intelligence uh, who is speaking as a whistleblower about what he personally witnessed about the people who really control our nation and the world. Uh, in our topic of Colonel Fletcher Prouty, Inside Whistleblower of the Bogus Cold War. Mm-hmm. And you're going to learn more about it today, uh, more revelations. So no further ado, here is Leno Sanic, and we'll be back to wrap it up here at Future Quick. That quotation that you just referred to, if I can just share with uh, our listeners the rest of this, uh, what was said. It says, uh, on February 7, 1972, Maurice Stans, Nixon's Secretary of Commerce, opened a White House conference on the industrial world ahead, a look at business in 1990. Okay, they're projecting 18 years ahead. This three-day meeting of more than 1,500 of the country's leading businessmen, scholars, and the like were concluded with this memorable summary statement by Roy Ash, president of Lytton Industries. He says, State capitalism may well be a form for world business in the world ahead. That the Western countries are trending toward a more unified and controlled economy, having a greater effect on all business. And the communist nations are moving more and more toward a free market system. The question posed during this conference on which a number of divergent opinions arose was whether East and West would meet someplace toward the middle around 1990. Now, that was, <laughs> that was his quote, 1972. Yeah. And he, either he was, he was clairvoyant or he was really, really lucky or there was a very good control system to bring that about right at 1990 mm-hmm. with the falling of the wall and, if anything, even through communist China, Exactly what he's explained has happened. They have moved to be more free market, where at the same time we now are going towards state-controlled economy with regulations on Wall Street. They, we have government taking over a lot of our housing. They've, they've, they now own a car company. They now own the major insurer company mm-hmm. in America. So basically either somebody's just really a lucky guesser or there is a plan that has been activated to do this. I'm sure it's just all luck. With, with some very, very patient people that are bringing this about. Yeah. You, you know, I've mentioned on the show a few times, um, Lynn, that, uh, you know, there's a reason you never hear of things like uh, peace profiteers. And that's because there's money to be made in war. 
And we, we know that Eisenhower talked about beware of the military-industrial complex. But there were a lot of people who had a lot to gain by setting up the Cold War the way it turned out. Did they not? Oh, yeah. You know, and like you mentioned, uh, there was, was an 1,800 businessman there thinking about that back in 1972. Right. So right. this is long-term planning, right? How are we going to make money in the 90s and 2000s? But they knew that the Cold War had a beginning and it also had an end. And as they carved up the world, I think of the Yalta Conference where, where we had our president give over millions of tens of millions of people and just threw them over the Iron Curtain uh, into you know slavery and into this terrible suffering uh, based upon you know our, our great wonderful American leaders and great wonderful America um, not providing freedom to millions of people but actually enslaving millions mm. of people through this uh, and it. it to me, it's something we need to remember when we talk about the virtues of America is what role we've played in bringing this about. And, of course, America is the central focus of, of the secret team, although they're involved around the world. Um, it, one, one example of their manipulation uh, that's talked about in this book is about how the secret team members and staffers controlled and directed the Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara, and, and even President Johnson during the Vietnam War. Uh, of course, McNamara was at a critical role. I mean, he's forever had the Vietnam War, you know, around his neck like an albatross. Uh, a lot of his key planning and things uh, were understood by historians to be the key part of how Vietnam played out. Of course, it was Johnson. How did the secret team people manipulate these gentlemen and others to to play out Vietnam the way they wanted? Well, they would doctor figures. Uh, you know, they would uh, color, uh, you know, information. And that was one of the big things I think that brought down General Westmoreland, where he thought, we're winning, we're winning, we just need a few more troops and we're winning. And it was far from the truth. You know, and uh, so if you could just talk uh, Bell Helicopter into making, uh, you know, geez, I don't even have the right number, but 5,000 helicopters, and, uh, you know, Fletcher uh, illuminated one thing. He said, when you have a helicopter, for every hour it's flowing, it needs 24 hours maintenance. Electrician, a machinist, uh, somebody else, you know, three men work an eight-hour eight shift for every hour that helicopter's flown. And when you think of all the helicopters they had there, and think of all the men, you know, thousands and thousands of support staff, never mind just, you know, the soldiers. So this is like a big, big money-making thing, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, from the examples I saw, the, 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 these uh, staffers and other people who briefed McNamara and controlled his day-to-day -day operations, they actually would sort of set up the meetings where he would go over and inspect things at Vietnam. They, they would be the ones who would, like, send an invitation that would go to him from the same people. Their briefer would be there to tell them what to expect to see, and then they would go set up everywhere where he went to go look where they controlled all the things that he reviewed, everything that he inspected. They were able, not only through briefings given to him, but what he viewed in a control of his agenda, his itinerary, uh, the impression he would get about something. And then he would let, they would let him be the unwitting seller to Johnson. Now, of course, they controlled Johnson, too, in, in many of the information that, that he was privy to outside the Department of Defense. But, but this, these are the kind of... Uh, the very low-key kind of ways that the secret team works to get their way, is it not? Yeah, I'd agree with that. Uh, no. I mean, that's certainly what Colonel Prouty uh, in his book, you know, impresses over and over again, 
And, and you know, that's the kind of thing we see now when we see the dog and pony shows where we have our leaders that go over to Iraq or Afghanistan and they're shown things that give a certain impression of what's going on, uh, how things are going. And, of course, this is an old technique, you know. You used to have the Germans and others, and they'd bring the Red Cross in and they'd show how well the the POWs were being taken care of and things like that and manipulation. But uh, that has not stopped here. I think it goes on in Guantanamo Bay and other places as well, too. Certainly all of the extraordinary rendition stuff. Right. But but the stuff where we actually have politicians that get oh, to go see. That, oh, yeah, this is great. Very, Look at this. Very, very controlled environment where our decision makers, the people, if the decision makers we elect, if they don't have the wisdom and the discernment to recognize when they're being manipulated, then heaven help us. We're, we're really out of control if they don't have an understanding or suspicion that that may be going on. Well, and that seems to be the case, unfortunately. Well, what do you think, uh, Mr. Osanic, is the end game scenario that groups like the Secret Team want to accomplish in the world? And, and, and the elites that they serve, you know, I understand that they're even doing the bidding of another group. Um, what, what do they want to take us to? What, how do they want the world to sort of sort itself out? Well, that's a pretty big question there. Um, I don't know that I can answer that. Um, you know, C- Fletcher called this first book CIA, I mean, uh, the secret team, the CIA, and it's in control of the assets of the world. You know, they, they want to control the monetary system, and I guess uh, whatever they can do to uh, fight the other guys, whether, if, you know, it's communism or, or whatever new enemy is going to pop up now, it's uh, human greed. Uh, people want to take over a country, and uh, if they can't do it by voting, they'll do it by secret means. And, of course, now you can't even trust electronic voting machines. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, uh, and when you bankrupt a country and it's indebted to you, uh, you control its resources, you know. So, well, now, I mean, that, I can only speak yeah. on, you know, what your worst fear is that uh, right. the... Well, I, you know, like I say, I just try to look at the vector, the vector of where they're taking us and where it projected out, extrapolate out. What, what is the kind of scenario that they want us to settle in? Because everything that we've gone through, at least by the insinuations that people have made, you know, people who are influenced with these people who actually write, give their views, um, they always talk about these things as being transitory. Just like what the quote I just read a little, little bit ago from Mr. Ash, that there was a season for this difference between capitalism and communism, and then they would merge, and there was a set time in which that would happen. Um, and, and I've heard many times that this operates on something called the Hegelian dialectic, that they operate where, where there's a certain worldview or a thesis, and then an, an, an opposing one is set up an antithesis with the goal that through that, through that clash, you're going to end up with synthesis, which actually was just what that gentleman just described in that quotation, mm-hmm. was exactly. that a synthesis occurs, and that's the real end game they want to get to. And as far as the, uh, the setup of the duality of the world in, t- in terms of the, 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 the world behind the Iron Curtain of, capital, of uh, communism and then the, quote, free world under capitalism, where the thesis and antithesis to justify having a United Nations to, to try to manage this this world that was in combat, mortal combat, these two ideologies, and then to eventually merge into some synthesized something third in between the two mm-hmm. uh, in a form of global government. So is, is that basically where you think we're going, is uh, more and more control over the citizens of Earth, taking away more of their rights, their freedom to 
live as they please, work as they please, have kids as they please, uh, move around as they please, say what they want, uh, control over their finances, their jobs. Um, uh, is this the direction that we're going in the world, uh, global centralized control of our businesses, our governments, things like this? Well, you've said a lot there, and I don't know that I, I can predict that, but that's the observation someone would have to make, that it's not going the other way around. They want a one-world clampdown. I mean, look at the way rights have been taken away in America. And if you subscribe that 9-11 was an inside job, then this is an orchestration. This isn't really protecting us for our own good. This is a way to clamp down on everything. But what this would also suggest, too, is that the Red Scare of the Cold War was also something that was a setup to get us there. I mean, it was taught for people, you know, I, I was born in the last year of the baby boomers. And so those at my age that came before me, uh, the main thing hang, hanging over us, the enemies in the world, were, were communism. And the, and the communists coming over and taking over our country. And that defined the worldview, who was right, who was wrong, who was good, who was bad. And it's a lot to swallow to realize that maybe we were put on. Not, not that there aren't bad people over there oppressing people. Uh, there's a lot of oppression going on, people left and right, whatever. But but that this whole thing was a contrived uh, scenario, that there was no plan for one side to completely take over another. N- never that thought. It was the thought that this would do something to get the world into a certain state to get to a more nefarious position. It, 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 is, that, is that really the situation we're looking at? Well, Fletcher wrote about that a lot, and uh, you, you get that idea from to listening to him or or uh, Buckminster Fuller, you know, that globalization is uh, is on its way, and, uh, uh, you know, it's the end of sovereignty. But, you know, people people gave their lives based upon what they believed about right and wrong, good and bad in the Cold War. People gave yeah. their lives in the military, whether it was in Korea or whether they were serving, you know, 24-7 a SAC base, you know, flying bombers in the air, or doing whatever resistance they could do against the enemy of Russia because we understood that mortal enemy wanted to destroy us. And their people on their side did the same thing too, I might add. But the entire worldview of our movies, uh, things that came from uh, uh, you know, any, any kind of pronouncements from our government, everything was drilled into our head that that was the real threat in life and that was what was worthy for us to give our lives on behalf of our fellow citizens and our families was because of this dire threat we had. And the fact that this was all really a contrivance, um, that is very shocking. In fact, I find that's very, very offensive to older people I've talked to uh, who had bought into that worldview for their whole life. And they were well-meaning, good, godly people that loved their neighbors and loved their family and had sacrificed because that is such an offense to the core of people who've lived their life being really led under that understanding. Yeah. Well, because you've, no one would want to be said they made a fool of. For most of their yeah. life, I mean, yeah. nobody wants that. Guess uh, what? You've been a past patsy in everything that you've believed. We've evaluated yeah. politicians. Every politician that comes to evaluate on where they stand with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, evaluate every every kind of person in their stand based upon how it relates to that understanding of the world, and the fact that that world was a was a fake world, sort of like a Hollywood set that was built, mm-hmm. and it looked like a real town on the outside. And you go behind it, it's nothing but but you know sticks and two before. Um, is well, that the that, kind of impact the, it has on our world? That's the struggle to really learn what's going on 
and it's a rare person that Fletcher has written about it. And, um, you know, one, a quote he had was that uh, with the media now, people are told what to think. They're not asked to think. So if you just buy into that they're... Uh, you know, uh, some people in a cave in, in <laughs> the thing about 9-11, those guys are from Saudi Arabia. And if I ever heard Bin Laden, he said, we want U.S. troops off of Holy Land. I think he mm-hmm. wanted them out of Saudi Arabia. Right. Now, how they ever got into uh, Afghanistan and Iraq, it just baffles me. But people are repeated this over and over like a mantra, like a parrot, until you say, uh, Bin Laden, 9-11, Iraq. Yeah, let's go. Well, you yeah. know, they're there, Afghanistan. And like you mentioning. Uh, if you're unfortunate not enough to not think this right through, and you end up serving there, you think you're defending your way of life, your flag, your hometown, you know, your morals, your values. You're protecting that, but yet you wonder what the other people are thinking. Like, hey, we're living here in the middle of nowhere in the mountains of Afghanistan. What are you guys doing here? Right. You know. And if it turns out that we're not the guys that attacked you, uh, you know, the whole thing is a put on. And now, it, a lot of our listeners understand where we're coming from with this. I mean, they've dealt with this information on our show and elsewhere. But it's something that, particularly in America, I know you're, you're Canadian, but in America, it's so much a part of who we are, you know, as, as sort of like the, in the cowboy movies. We're the people that come and save the world, and, and we want to be virtuous example to the world and want to save them. And, and people who do that in a very well-meaning, genuine way, when they start seeing this and realize they've been had, it is a very, very painful thing to accept. But as I understand it, Colonel Prouty, who was around all of these figures, all of the key decision makers during the era of the Cold War, he was in the middle of them. He saw this information firsthand. Uh, he, 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 he was involved between the DOD, caught in the middle between them and the CA and all this. And he verifies that this is the world that we actually deal with, manipulated by a handful of unknown, unseen, unelected people, uh, that allow us to live in a fantasy world of our elected officials getting the real information and making, you know, the best judges they can. Uh, and, and usually what happens in our country, you've got part of the country that thinks, well, if the Republicans do it, then yeah, they're doing the best job, not the other guys. And the other half of the country thinks vice versa. And, and the real cruel reality seems to be that both sides have been had mm-hmm. by what's going on. Now, what, what, what I see as a natural extension from what I read, from his writings is that whenever they play their cards or their rationale for doing a lot of this, there's a lot of selfish interest, financial interest and things. But also there was always a consistent anti-communist rationale that was given, that they were the bad guys, we were the good guys, and and the threat of communism would justify killing dictators or anybody else for that matter, any kind of freedom fighters, overthrowing countries, creating our own terrorism, justifying the fact that we have to do ugly stuff because the other guys do more ugly stuff. Uh, this duality was, was really what gave them their justification. Now, is that now been applied since communism has really been tamped down somewhat? Have they now just taken that same system and applied the duality to Islamic extremism and now beat that into the citizens' heads as well as justifying all their actions today? Is that now the enemy du jour for us to hate is, a, is Islamic, Islamic fundamentalism to replace communism? Well, if you back it up just a little further and call it terrorism, then it's stateless, and there's no one place you can pin down. Like in the end of World War II, you could go somewhere, you could go to Berlin and plant the flag and say, okay, we're in charge now, it's over. 
and even the citizens of Berlin would say, okay, the war is over, we surrender, and that's that. But with terrorism, there is no one place you can put a flag and say, okay, we've uh, ended it. So now it's almost an infinite proposition here. The war and terrorism will be there forever. And if there isn't, they'll have false flag attacks. They'll have phony terrorists starting something to keep people in this state of fear and spending. Like, you know, of course you can spend that, you know. Now that's Black the secret. Just no problem. That's one of the secret tools they have, right? That's very effective. If if some leader came in and said, "We're going to really curtail the funding that goes to some of these intelligence groups, at least the part that they can control," if they really curtail that and in our influence overseas, these groups can actually contrive a terrorist attack to actually give a black eye to a leader that would 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 retreat on some of that funding and actually set up something to put pressure back on on him or her to reinstate that funding. Could they not? Yeah, and and then, sadly, you come back to money. You're talking about big money. You know, it's not really so much uh, an ideology or, you know, whatever. Uh, you know, it's just that um, if we make enough money at it, we'll blow up one of our own buildings. Mm-hmm. And, in yeah. fact, you know, for all of the resources it would take, say, to overthrow another country, if you know what you're doing and you have a handful of very well-placed people that know what they're doing and you use them with some money for bribes and things as force multipliers, the money it would cost to overthrow a country is usually a drop in the bucket compared to the windfall of money that can be made to take in over their oil fields or their other big business or diamonds or whatever it is. Isn't that a reality of the world? Is that is that taking over... These kind of areas is again very small potatoes compared to the the financial stakes that are at play. You know, it seems on paper that uh, in the 40s and 50s they could do that easier than it really is, though. Huh, okay. Um, you know, like with Mossadegh and some of these other Iranian right. uh, things, uh, that they they were able to get some covert operators in there, sway public opinion, and buy up a newspaper or two, and then uh, overthrow the government. Now, you're talking about Operation but, Ajax, right? Now, this, this, isn't this where our own American people went in and bombed mosques and did the kind of thing that we call terrorism today? Our own people were causing this and pending it on other people to get their democratically elected leader overthrown? Right, but I'm, I'm making a reference that it's much more difficult now, uh, even when you think of what they said in, in the Bay of Pigs in Cuba. We just land a few people there, and the whole countryside will turn on them, and we'll be greeted as liberators, you know? Right. It's the same thing you hear about now, and, and um, even in Vietnam. And I'm sure the Russians, when they went into Afghanistan, were told the same thing. Don't worry, we'll, we'll just take it over. Mm-hmm. We'll provide people some jobs and... Uh, I mean, I wonder how much money has been given away. I, uh, you know, I hear millions and billions uh, to Afghanistan and Iraq after the infrastructure is destroyed, and now they're trying to rebuild. I mean, uh, you would wonder if, uh, if see, democracy um, is one thing where people vote in a small community and they agree on something, and for the better of the community, the the, the top always rises. The the wisest people in there in that community will meet and you discuss things and the community grows. But when you get people that are just come in and tell you what to do, um, you know, and, and uh, I mean, it's the foreign policy of America is like I said, shaped by this reaction. If yeah. you get people telling you what to think and you just react to it. Right. All right. Now, now Colonel Prouty passed away in the summer of 2001, correct? Which yeah. was just a, I mean, a couple of months before the, the 911 event happened, which was yeah, the, yeah. the big event of uh, of our generation. Yeah. 
yeah. From what you know, I mean, you, you were, I think, his close confidant for something like eight years working alongside him with all his provocative writings that he did. What do you think he would have thought had he witnessed that event and thought about it a little bit? What do you think he would have said what was going on based upon yeah. what he said in the past? He would have been very cynical. Uh, I, I think uh, uh, along with just me spending time with him, the first thing I thought is, uh, I, I can't believe that, you know, uh, around the Pentagon, there, you know, there were not missiles, there were not more planes. I mean, how could so many people be told to stand down? You know, uh, you've got to be kidding me. It's This has to be planned, you know. So would, and, uh, would he have said, would, best as you know of him all the years you're with him, would he have seen that activity and after checking out some facts over a few days, would he have said, mm, looks like the hallmark of the secret team at action? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and he he would have spoken about it, but as I say, he, he was old. He passed away from natural causes, so there was nothing sinister there. Uh, and it's just there, these things are going to happen in our future again until we get a grasp of them, you know. And and mm-hmm. it goes back to like you know the Boston Tea Party or you know um, uh, the Reichstag fire. You know, there's these phony false flag operations that happen, mm-hmm. and they galvanize the country. I mean, there's people who have said that about Pearl Harbor attack. Right. You know, that uh, certain key people in the government knew it was coming. Right. And they decided to just look, get the aircraft carriers out of there, but make sure there's a lot of ships in there that look uh, that they need a lot of work anyway. Right. And once we're, uh, you know... Well, Judge Andrew DiPolitano, in his most recent book, The Lies Our Government Told Us, makes that clear about Pearl Harbor. And, in fact, uh, uh, we asked him directly about 911 on our show recently, and, and Judge DiPolitano said, yep, it's the same kind of scenario with 911. And he says, uh, American citizens have a right to be suspicious about the government story. And uh, he compared it to the Kennedy assassination. He said he has uh, people, uh, well-placed people in the FBI who told him for a fact uh, that it was a hit job that was done. And uh, he said he sees 911 in the same way, which is a very bold thing to say from somebody like uh, uh, Judge Napolitano. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And Tom, very interesting segment, Bionic. Well, you know, um, the um, that segment when we talk about this guy, somebody economically, how these are how the the cold or the uh, Eastern world, Western world are going to change with our economics mm-hmm. and sort of meet in the middle, and how exact that was and how it came to pass to the to the year. But it also shows that they know ahead of time that these phases like the Cold War are transient. Mm-hmm. They may last a generation, but they're transient. Be curious to know what their plans were about the Islamic Revolution, mm-hmm. which they really set in place. Because mm-hmm. if you study it, you will find out the West is the one that created the Islamic Revolution. Sure. We were the one that attacked Iran first. We disposed their democratic leaders. Mm-hmm. We, we set up al-Qaeda. Mm-hmm. American government set up al-Qaeda to battle the Russians. Mm-hmm. We funded uh, Osama bin Laden as an agent. Mm-hmm. Most all this stuff you can track where yeah, we oh, set up. It goes, it goes back to the CIA back in the 80s, yeah. So they, they planned their stuff ahead of time so we'd be where we are today and all the weapons sales. Sure, even the weapons thing. of mass destruction were, yeah. you know, Rumsfeld there shaking hands with Saddam Hussein. Yeah, he gave yeah, stuff. That's so part okay. of congressional right. testimony. So I'd be very curious to know what they, what they plan for the Islamic Revolution, how long the war on terror is supposed to be, mm-hmm. what what does it lead to the next phase? Yeah. Any idea? Uh, ever seen a movie called 1984? <laughs> well, I've read the book. Yep. Uh, someone else who can tell you something is Merv who can tell you how to contact us at Future Quake. 
Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. We have to go. Okay. we got one more day uh, with uh, Lionel Sanic. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Ciao. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. Quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quick Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom Going Quick Bionic. Yes, because we have only short interlude here. Uh, this is our last segment with our guest, Lynn Osanic of Black Op Radio, talking about Colonel Fletcher Prouty, an in- insider whistleblower of the bogus Cold War. And here's the last segment. We'll be back to wrap it up here on Future Quick. I want to ask you something very different here, and this is a touchy subject for us because we, we reach a Christian audience here. Um, we, we can only touch a few things on this interview with you about Colonel Prouty's book. Our listeners are going to have to get his materials to be able to really see how he really drums this whole thing and how the world works. But Colonel Prouty says in there that members of the secret team are embedded in just about every American institution we have in our society, including academia, big business, um, our media, um, even entertainment, all these different institutions in society. They have well, if people. I can interrupt you for one moment, yeah. you mentioned that when Jesse Ventura was elected as an independent, the CIA called him down and they did meet with him, and he said there was about 20 or 30 people there, and they were all from different walks of life. They're grilling him. They wanted to know how, how right. did he get elected, because we didn't see him coming. And so what you're alluding to is the same type of people, you know, the intelligence agency embedded in all walks of life. Right, right. Well, but, but but they're in all these if different institutions. You know, we don't recognize them, but they're doing their thing. And, and and one thing is they're actually using the infrastructure. They're using it as a force multiplier to use the infrastructure to accomplish their goals. Uh, and, and and also, um, they are trying to influence these groups internally uh, to get them to support the cause. So in other words, they will even influence their fellow people in big business or media or whatever to get them on board. Now, now, given that these authoritative political aspirations, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of things we understand the worldview that the CIA has, we have noticed that our leadership, national leadership in America, and our evangelical leadership actually holds a lot of the almost identical political convictions as what we would have a classic CIA worldview as far as very, very strong um, foreign policy, a very uh, authoritative foreign policy in other nations, very, very strong military that's, that's a very aggressive force, uh, strong support for torture, uh, strong support for authoritarian control of our police, uh, th- these kind of things, supporting the Patriot Act, these other kind of actions, uh, a strong uh, hatred for uh, Islamic uh, faith and the fundamentalist and stuff. This is a common hallmark of a lot of our evangelical leadership in America, which is an important part of our country. 
given that the fact that their worldviews are so coincident right now with people in the intelligence community, would it be a possibility that that even our religious structure, which is very important in our country, in America, could even be infiltrated with people like this from the secret team or CIA that could be directing the the religiously faithful in America? Well, I'm really not in a position to comment on that. I, I don't know for sure. But you could you could make an assumption that, uh, you know, uh, they infiltrated every other kind of group. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I'm thinking of the Black Panthers and things like that. Right. There were agent provocateurs out there working for these various agencies, whether it was the FBI or an intelligence group that did infiltrate and uh, and try to steer directions. But, you know, I... I um, I, I really couldn't give you a, a real opinion. Well, it would make you would be based it'd, on it'd make you wonder because, like what you're alluding to, is some stuff that came to light in hearings that Congress had on what the FBI was doing, where they got into the civil rights movement, they got into some of these nonprofits and other public interest groups, and either stirred them to violence or stirred them to extreme positions, so then they could clamp down on them. Or they would actually try to do things to to be able to smoke out people that they didn't want that had disfavorable political positions to what the FBI thought. And this was exposed by Congress in some hearings that had gone on for a long time. There have been claims that it's still going on today. Uh, We have people like Hal Turner, who was a strong right-wing nationalist. Uh, who who was very strong in getting other people to get on his side and wanting to overthrow our government and do this very extremist view, you know, hate view. Uh, even, you know, going on Sean Hannity's show on the radio and talking to him on his show and things like this. And then it finds out he's so anti-government that they find out in the last year or so that he was an FBI plant, I believe. Yeah. Isn't that right? Yeah. And, and, and had done that just to try to get people worked up enough so that they could lower the boom on them. It's interesting that... It's interesting that he was often complimented uh, at being knowing knowing the laws against slander and libel so well that he would always just come to the just come to the fine line and yeah. never go over. Uh, I remember reading a story about him years and years ago, where they said that he was uh, he was a genius at it, and it was as if somebody had taught him how to do that. Yeah, yeah. and they they then they and they went yeah. on about you know how bad of a guy he was. Now it's obvious that he probably did have somebody teach him. Yeah, somebody did teach him. Now, you know, we read about Operation Mockingbird and how people, well-placed people in our major media control the information that we have. We're sort of in the position of these uh, leaders like McNamara and others where we're being misled by our briefing officers in the mass media, people like Walter Cronkite and others. We found out a part of this. It just would surprise me that in America we're so strongly influenced by some of our national religious leaders that if, in fact, there wouldn't be some kind of infiltration, it would almost be like a no-brainer for them to want to do this, particularly to push the kind of political methodologies that are consistent with where the secret team always falls. Well, you know, I I guess sometimes things come down to money and human greed, and, uh, you know, people change their allegiances. You you mentioned you think that they're speaking on behalf of a, a religious community. And yet you find out they're an informant, right? And uh, that's just a way of life. So you can—it's an uncomfortable fact, and I think that's why more people don't look into these things, uh, some of these things in history, because it really is uncomfortable. Well, you know, I, yeah, it's something that I really hadn't pondered about and hadn't really thought long until the last few days, and it really—I just—it 
made me shudder to think the possibility that exists, but how likely this would be. You know, we've had religious leaders who who were the the strongest, uh, most virtuous in uh, you know certain moral issues that they taught and things like that, and then you find later that they're involved in homosexual encounters or they're leading an alternative life that's totally different from what they th- what we thought they were doing. I mean, we yeah. even have guys like Chuck Barris, who was the zany host of the Gong Show. That Supposedly. turns out was a top FBI informant in Hollywood. Really? So yeah. So nothing would surprise me as far as why we're being pushed a certain political worldview, and I'm not even saying a conservative worldview, but a very authoritative, mm-hmm. very strong hand over the world. Reminds me of Operation. You know, uh, a great example of all of this is Operation Gladio, mm-hmm. which was originally instituted uh, as a countermeasure against a Cold War invasion. But right. they ended up using using the cells that they had left behind in these various European countries to help influence national policy by staging, uh, you know, the Bologna train bombing in Italy killed right. 70 people. Was, you know, everybody admits, even the judge, that that was done by elements of Operation Gladio at the behest of the American government. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the guy who the guy who built the bombs, the judge, mm-hmm. the only person who doesn't, you know, who doesn't. Admit that is the newspapers, mm-hmm. but the you know the federal prosecutors certainly do. Well, I think this is something we need to really seriously look at more. And I'm not naming names. I'm not accusing a finger any individual. Mm-hmm. But it's something the possibility that we have to really seriously consider to explain some of the strange positions that some of these leaders are taking, uh, and the strong relationships with political figures and things like that that are going on. Uh, it, it totally would, wouldn't surprise me at all. You know, on, on a different matter, uh, Colonel Prouty is beloved by a large number of people. Uh, he he says very provocative things that, um, um, you know, have, have been, a, been a real uh, amazing insight for people that have worked. But he has his detractors, too. And in fact, uh, some of the things that they've said is that his, his views are too extreme, that people would never do anything as extreme as what Colonel Colonel Prouty suggests, and they've even criticized him because I guess he had done some work for the Scientology organization, and used that as a main way to discredit him. Can, do you know Colonel Prouty somewhat? Can you comment as, as far as the nature of his relationship with them? I think he just did some analysis work for them or something like that. But I thought it was a good time to set the story straight because if people do research online, they'll see some mention of that probably. Yeah, I think Yeah, yeah, it's all it's all trash. I mean, you have to consider the source. I think anyone if they have an interest in uh learning some real history, uh read one of Fletcher Prouty's books, read an article, anything, it probably the first 3 or 4 pages will get an idea of the man and um his disposition and and how he writes and it's just matter of fact from first-hand knowledge. Now, mm-hmm. that's what he's writing about. And when people bring in um, uh, the Institute for Historical Review or something like that, this this is one of the publishers that um, reprinted his book, The Secret Team. Mm-hmm. It turns out, and, and they also published some book saying that uh, a guy had written that there never was uh, six million Jews killed or something mm-hmm. to that effect. Right. right? Uh, people are complaining that, oh, the prophet's, from Fletcher's secret team book are going to fund the Nazis or something like right, that, you know, right, or white hate groups. Right. I mean, how, you know, people have got to really struggle to pull these kind of threads out. Um, you know, mm-hmm. the Scientology, uh, L. Ron Hubbard, some people wanted 
some analysis of his military records. And they asked Fletcher if he would, if they would study some of his military records to mm-hmm. find out if he was like uh, an intelligence operative agent right. or what, or was he just really who he said he was, right? right. So, um, y- you know, but as soon as you mentioned the word, uh, you know, uh, white power, Nazis, or Scientology, mm-hmm. you get, oh, that guy must be way out there. What you have to do is realize this is a reaction, an opposition to the real topics that Fletcher's talking about. He's mm-hmm. talking about powerful secret teams within the government, hiding behind the government. They have the power to remove a president and put their own guy in and just keep the, the big wheels moving. And if you've read Fletcher, you know what I'm talking yeah. about. You yeah. won't find anything about um, uh, Scientology or things like that in any of his writings. He's not trying to promote their religion or anything like that. No, my my no. understanding was he wrote some things that were about the secret team that happened to be in some of their publications or you know, some newsletters. Well, there was, a, there was a magazine called Freedom. Right. I'm not sure if that was a Scientology publication or something like that, but yeah. this magazine that that uh, um, you know uh, publishes an article, they wrote things for Jim Garrison, you know, and, and the same right. thing, you know. And so if um, you know um, if Playboy magazine or something like that has, a, you know, uh, here's a man's view of something like that, along with all this other stuff, they have mm-hmm. some kind of article on something or a stereo review, you know, that's it. Um, right. The thing I I got from Fletcher is when I put all his work together on this one CD-ROM I made for him. There, all the stuff is there in a row. It's not any of these other extraneous issues. If you're wanting to learn about mm-hmm. uh, one man's opinion of how the world works from his from his view, and you were elaborating on how what a unique view this was, being mm-hmm. a VIP pilot and then moving up high in the Pentagon, he was one of the top 52 people cleared some of these meetings. So you're talking about 35,000 people in the Pentagon, and um, and he's one of the top 52. He was a rare individual. He did not have to sign an oath of secrecy to the CIA, and you can read or hear about him, and he'll explain how that happened, but he did not have to. So at, from time to time, he said he liked to level the playing field, letting out a little information when he just heard a little too much mm-hmm. one-sided propaganda. He, you know, he'd let... Uh, something out saying you, know, you should investigate this or investigate that topic but um well he, he also commented too that he was careful not to break the law and what he talked about but that there were a lot of documents that were released at one time or another that were released but people couldn't really understand what they were saying fully yeah. understand the system enough the system of who did what to who and how they interacted to be able to fully appreciate what they were implying and that well, within the thing, government they often stood that yes sorry uh how he ended up with a lot of material was, he said that there was strict policies in the in the Pentagon about having eyes only, top secret, ultra sensitive, whatever the the top categories were, on paperwork, and you couldn't leave things around. So he said he asked his secretaries not to stamp anything. That way, when people came into his office, they really wouldn't know what was top secret and what wasn't. Hmm. So that's why a lot of stuff that he talked about and he took home with him when he retired were uh, things that weren't classified, and if nobody stamped him top secret he, on his own work, he was able to keep that. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, he also said that since he knew exactly where the truth was, he knew where the line was, where he, what he could say. He'd right. walk right up to that line. Well, he was a and loyal he, American, he had too. A I mean, yeah, he was a you war know, hero. Uh, he wouldn't do anything that would harm our country, from what I gather from his record. No, uh, not at all. And, and he yeah. told me several times that some, you know, one reason he didn't didn't come out on a radio show and name some names or or talk about something because he realized the country could quite possibly fall 
over some of the revelations of these things. And he had a higher oath to his country than he had to the Defense Department or, or the CIA or the Air Force or whatever it was. I mean, yeah. he, he felt quite proud of the, uh, of the American values and morals of the country. And well, he wanted to preserve that. Well, let me ask but, you. But you know, there at, would yeah. be. He also said, "Sorry to interrupt you. To finish this, yeah. is that if there ever was a court trial for anything on the JFK assassination or things, he and others like him would have come out of the woodwork to testify. Mm-hmm. But the fact that there never was a trial kind of underscores the power structure here. That right. you no, know, there will be a blue ribbon commission, you know, just like the 9/11 commission, and there will won't be a fact finding thing. It'll be more of a an exercise in. Uh, so sorry, I interrupted you. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, I know, I know exactly what you're saying. That's her normal operation. Uh, looking to the future here, we're coming up to the last, uh, I don't know, eight minutes or so of our, of our talk. Um, what do you think the secret team people right now are doing right now in 2010, and what do you think their priorities are, and what do you expect them to do in the future? Uh, I, I thought about that a little bit. I'm unable to answer that at all. All I know is that if I'm studying something that happened 40 or 50 years ago and getting a handle on it, what's happening now has already been prepared 20 years in the in the mm-hmm. past. And like you're talking about Roy Litton and uh, 1972 talking about be ready for 1990, what's happening now was already planned 15, 20 years ago. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's, that's my opinion on that, that uh, I couldn't predict it at all. Well, uh, I mean, you, you've seen the way these guys have acted over a generation. You've watched their nor- normal modus operandi. Can you even speculate at all? Uh, just speculation on given their normal characteristics and the world that we live in today, what would be the likely things that you wouldn't be surprised to see that they were up to? Well, the bankrupting of America. I mean, if you look at the Soviet Union as an example, uh, however that was allowed to happen, and then just the states... Uh, you know, Ukraine or, or wherever and all these, you know, wherever the tanks are going in and, you know, all split up and no power. And then, of course, no power to wage a big war against anyone and then to defend yourself against a, a global threat, which would be maybe, you know, um, depression or food. Mm-hmm. I mean, so these these multinational companies... Uh, you know they're kind of just uh, chasing the sun. You know the sun's going around the earth, and yeah. uh, and the uh, the wall, the, the stock markets are open here in the Bahrain, and they're open in London, then they're open in Beijing, and <laughs> so they just follow the sun. And the guys that are making money are, are going 24/7, and uh, they've been planning things, and they have not been really planning much on their own behalf. It takes a small community, mm-hmm. uh, I think, vision to plan things on your own behalf. Do, do you think it is likely? that they're working right now to make sure that we have a war with Iran, for example? You know, I'm just totally amazed that that's in the news every day. I I just, I can't see it happening. Um, it, it would be, it would be so one-sided. It's just like the same thing with Korea. Every now and then I'm living on the West Coast and I hear, you know, American TV, that oh, Korea's got a missile, they fired a missile and all that. With the military might of China and America, you don't think that they would just, if China, <laughs> when you see it in the news, though, you get the feeling that Korea has aimed their one missile at Alaska or yeah. San Francisco or somewhere, and they're going to get us, you know, and we better be ready and strapped in for action. Are you kidding me? I mean, the whole thing is a propaganda game. The guy wanted right. military funding and aid from America, and then when he didn't get it, he says, okay, well, I'm going back into build military things, right, you know, but I'll stop building military weapons if you guys give me aid. 
Right. You know, and it just so happens that I think that America's on tough right. financial times, and they've stopped giving aid. And so, as some kind of show, they're building their one or two missiles. And, uh, you know, the same kind of thing in with Iran, it seems to me to be a show, a game being played. And I hope, like you mentioned, that all, people signed up and they gave their lives to protect their way of life. But some of these things are put up and, um, you know, there's a facade. And sometimes you get a false flag operation where you think you've been attacked and you better defend your way of life. Well, let me ask you this. If you were a high-level elected official, let's say a president or or you know powerful senator or whatever, let's just say you were elected. Let's pretend you're an American citizen, you know, or, or like Obama, you don't have to be, but um, you were elected. <laughs> and, uh, okay, so you, ha- you have whatever authority you have at your disposal. How could you or anybody else or people partnered with you possibly rein in our intelligence services and the actions of the secret team? Or, or is it too late to do that? And, and what would they try to do if someone actually tried to do something to minimize their influence? Well, you know, the past precedent is that uh, with uh, Jack Kennedy, he was going to end the Federal Reserve. He was going to start printing his own money. He was going to end the space race with the Soviet Union. He signed National Security Action Memorandum 271 that said, look, forget the space race. We're going to go a joint American-Soviet effort. We're going to go together. Mankind is going to start getting along. Um, And um, the other point you made, that uh, would there be a reaction? Well, he said he was going to smash the CIA into a 1,000 pieces and scatter it to the wind. He started by firing Alan Dulles Mm -hmm. and the deputy director, uh, Charles Cabell. I mean, Charles Cabell's brother was Earl Cabell, the mayor of Dallas. I mean, these guys fight back. Whoa. So, <laughs> you uh-huh. know, uh, if you if if you decide you're going to, for instance, just end the Federal Reserve or uh, end a no boys network, uh, they're not going to take it lying down, and they're going to use their resources to get back at you. And if their resources, if you you don't even know what they are, uh, you're fighting an enemy that you haven't got a, a good grasp on. So and, um, if you decide that you're going to fight them, you almost have to sort of resign yourself that you're a dead man and do what you can. Yeah, well, I think for, for people of America right now, you know, or any country, you have to look into it and understand what's happening and then decide if you condone that or you're going to oppose that or is there uh, a new way? Can you lead by example? Can you promote a better way? Can mm-hmm. you say, listen, we can have intelligence. We can still study if some people in, in the third world are going to attack us. Uh, you know, maybe if we don't take advantage of some situations as badly as we have in the past, when you're talking about United Fruit and some of the other things, if uh, maybe if we play as fair, the other side will play fair, and we won't have to worry about getting bombed. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't have that fear in Canada, and I, maybe it's naive, but I do not think, um, you know, guys living in a cave in Afghanistan are coming after me. Although we have Canadian troops in Afghanistan, and, you know, so I, I think that you just need leaders with a better leadership ability to say, you know, like the, the idea of the Department of Defense or Department right. of War. Like, if, you, if you're going to pick a war with America, we have a war department. We're coming for you. Right. Uh, not some kind of reaction where we'll wait to see where the guy sticks his head up like a gopher, and we'll go there, you know. Well, let me make some suggestions myself to our listeners as individuals. If you're not a wealthy, powerful person yourself listening to this show, one of the things you can do is turn off the TV and do not listen to the programming that is being put into your head 
by the secret team through their mass media. Tom Bionic and not have one. Or you could not have one. You you could go rather listen to independent voices that are too dispersed for them to control, like Black Op Radio or Future Quake or or Pid Radio or these other kind of things. Listen to people, you know, poor guys like us Mm -hmm. who aren't important enough to be bribed by anybody, and go try to find your news there or from overseas accounts and information. Uh, you can actually not buy the products that some of these businesses that you find up to these shenanigans. Just don't buy their stuff. Don't put your money in the big banks, the big conglomerate banks. Go down to your local bank or somebody who you know in your community owns it. Put your resources there. Don't, Freedom 21. Don't Freedom feed the 21. system. Yeah, Freedom 21. Don't feed the system. You know, do your own private resistance against the secret team yourself. You're not going to destroy all of them. But if individuals, they, they can't target, they can't assassinate 300 million Americans. The 300 million Americans decide that they're not going to play ball in these individual things. That is the best shot we have. Uh, and, and also I would say, you know, don't get any well-connected people as your elected officials. Mm-hmm. If you find out these guys are on the the, uh, the uh, um, Council on Foreign Relations, if you find on their trilateral commission or these other things, just don't vote for them, even mm-hmm. if they sound good. You know, if they're that well-connected, keep them out of there. We, we've already seen from seeing uh, uh, um, Jesse Ventura and a few other guys, you can take a dark horse with very little experience, and at least they won't do any worse mm-hmm. than the other people that are in there. So take a risk on a, on a third-party candidate. Take somebody else who doesn't have the connections, and, and that could be your own, your own way to, to uh, provide resistance. You know, we're at the end of the show, uh, Mr. Osanic, and I want to thank you so much for being with us. And I just want to close to see if you could tell our listeners how they can get a copy of The Secret Team or the DVD products you have. And, and again, remind us how they can listen to your radio show. Sure. Well, I host a weekly show. It's called Black Op Radio. It's all one word, www.blackopradio.com, and also prouty.org, P-R-O-U-T-Y dot O-R-G. That's the Colonel Prouty reference site, and there's a lot of material there, and uh, there's an awful lot of shows and uh, interviews with Fletcher and things like that that are at the website, and if you want to get further into it, uh, there's links there on how to buy his book and uh, books and then CD-ROM and things like that. Well, I but, want to thank uh, you I so much. I found him very yeah. interesting, and uh, right. he was a very honorable uh, man, and I was very proud to have a friendship with him. Uh, and you're being faithful to his memory by what you're doing. And I want to thank you for your service for mankind uh, through what you do through your radio show and your website. And uh, listeners, the best thing you can do is actually use the information that he's taken all this time to make available to us. Thank you again, Mr. Osanic. Please come back again and visit with us again soon, would you? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much, both of you, for having me as a guest. It's been a great pleasure. Mm. Thank you again. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And Tom, let's get out of Babylon. Bionic. Boy, that's the truth. Yeah, I know. It's Boy, interesting. Yeah. This whole talk Deceiving about... Deceiving the nations of the earth. This whole, this whole talk about uh, uh, the secret team and how to get, get out from under them is like... Yeah. yeah. Another way to ask that would be, how do we get out of Babylon? Mm-hmm. Yep. And the the kings of the earth and the great merchants of the earth. Mm-hmm. Do you think I was out of line in the assertion about the, at least the possibility of infiltration in our religious leadership? Uh, I shudder to think about it. No, but I mean, you know, Paul said that, you know, in these last days, perilous times will come and people creep in know, unawares. Yeah, I was gonna. That's the next place I was gonna go. Well, they have an overwhelming political agenda. Mm-hmm. I don't know what else they could show to, to represent that. Mm-hmm. Someone else with no agenda, though, is Merv, who can tell you how to contact us at FutureQuake. 
Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Yeah, he's pretty much a dismembered head. <laughs> yeah, I don't hate to bring that up. Uh, come back tomorrow for tomorrow's Tremors. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I am Tom, not a new revenue source, Bionic. Not a new revenue source? Yes. Uh, I can only assume that's foreshadowing. It is foreshadowing. Of a story you've got today? Yeah, the second, the second most important one. Okay. And you have a new story because it's Friday, and what does Friday signify? Friday signifies the day where we uh, sort of rant and rave like lunatics, and 500,000 hands reach to the dial, and... Change to the left to find the music station. You think so? No, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I haven't been in all of those cars exhaustively. So, well, let me first tell our new listeners: it is tomorrow's tremors or today's review of the future's news. Mm-hmm. It is our end of the week review of the news after we've had our special guest, like we had this week, who we hope you enjoyed. And I enjoyed. Uh, so that's for our new listeners. But uh, I hope there aren't lots of hands changing the dial. In fact, I know of some people who like this as their favorite part of the show. Oh, well. Why? I appreciate that. I don't that. know. I, I, I guess in spite of us. Yeah. Uh-huh. I don't know. Yeah. Well, um, I guess we should probably... Do we don't, Do we have any announcements or anything? Uh, you know what? I just have a generic thing to say real quick um, to people. Mm-hmm. Um, our, our listeners, I forget to ask them occasionally to do this. When you all get a chance, if you like listening to Future Quick, please try to encourage other people to listen to it. Please be bold and tell other people. I mean, you can put whatever caveats you need to, like these guys are crazy or I don't believe most of what they say or they're guests, but they're interesting anyway or food for thought. I think they're on drugs. but Do whatever you need to do uh, to convince them to listen and at least provide subject matter for you all to discuss, debate, maybe at church. Uh, over dinner, whatever, some of in these the issues in the gulag, some of these issues uh, that need to have a serious and fair hearing to talk about. And um, also, if you go to any kind of message boards, chat rooms, if you are calling in on radio shows or whatever, just mention Future Quick. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have no monetary motive or any other kind of agenda net other than Truth. for doing this time. All right, doing the effort, we'd like to reach the most people possible. And sometimes I know I get so immersed in the content that I forget about that kind of thing, like just trying to expand the people we can speak to. So really, I think the most effective people to do that are our listeners. Because we have some of the most intelligent listeners, I believe, and uh, I think they can uh, do it better than we can in many ways. That's probably true. That's it for the commercial. Okay. Yeah, okay. You want to do a story first? Why don't you lay one on us? Okay. Unless you have another prepared statement you'd like to make. Editorial. (laughs) No. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Pilot in DC-9, 5.5-ton cocaine bust, quote-unquote, escaped custody 
in, count them, three separate countries. Okay. Uh, the identity of the American, uh, of the pilot of the American registered DC-9 uh, N-900SA from St. Petersburg, Florida, uh, that, that place should ring a little bit of bells, uh, caught carrying 5.5 tons of cocaine in Mexico's Yucatan several years ago, uh, Long Mystery finally saw the light of day recently in Mexico. Carmelo Vasquez Guerra of Venezuela was the DC-9's pilot who was said to have, quote-unquote, escaped from the airport while his airplane was being seized and four other members of his crew were arrested. He was later taken into custody by Mexican authorities and charged with flying an airplane packed with 120 identical suitcases filled with cocaine. Getting caught with 5.5 tons of cocaine would seem to call for some serious jail time. Reporters in Mexico assumed he'd been sent to prison for, like, forever. Uh, so imagine reporter Francisco Gomez uh, of Mexico City's El Universal surprised when he made a startling discovery. Carmelo Vasquez Guerra, amazingly and inexplicably, had been released from prison less than two years after being released. Uh, after being arrested, rather. The shocking news was delivered via an international headline stating that a pilot named Carmelo Vasquez Guerra had been arrested in the Western Africa nation of Guinea-Bissau. Uh, I don't know how mm -hmm. to say that. Never heard of it. Yeah. Uh, on a twin-engine Gulfstream 2 carrying, what else? 550 kilos or half a ton of cocaine. The date of Vasquez's West African arrest was July 13, 2008. Mexican authorities had dabbed Mark Carmelo uh, Guerra Gomez. Uh, Carmelo Guerra, sorry. Easy for you to say. Yeah, Gomez learned not long after authorities discovered him missing from the DC-9. How was it he was out of jail less than two years later, reporter Francisco, Gomer, Francisco Gomez asked. Authorities in Mexico refused to discuss Vasquez's release with reporter Gomez, but news about Camarillo kept coming and kept getting worse. Gomez discovered that Mexico was not the only country to arrest Vasquez Guerra for the presumably major offense of flying boxcar-sized loads of cocaine, only to let him go. It's happened in three. Caught and released under mysterious and unexplained circumstances. <clears throat> in Mexico, in Guinea-Bissau, and in Mali, home of Timbuktu, I might add, uh, drug pilot... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It really is. Um, drug pilot Carmelo Vasquez, Vasquez Guerra, or uh, more likely the global drug trafficking network to which he belongs, which has, it must be said, a strong and enduring presence in St. Petersburg, Florida, uh, the shuffleboard capital of the world, has an apparently inexhaustible supply of get-out-of-jail-free cards. Now that's it. That's all I have. Sorry, I had to adjust your mic. Oh, sorry. There, just a little bit. Well, so what do you take of that? Do you think that uh, I'm, I'm they're just winking at the drug thing? I mean, they catch it, catch and release? Yeah, well, I they mean... They want it to be sure this, to go in. This whole thing, this whole uh, St. Petersburg, Florida drug drug thing keeps coming up and uh, this is just the latest in a series of stories that I've read about it you know and um, it's like gosh here we have here we have this uh, uh, airport that's owned by defense contractors and stuff um, and then uh, uh, drug uh, we, we find out later that uh, it appears that drugs are being flown in and out of it 
including this DC-9 that was uh, being used by the CIA, and then it crash lands in the Yucatan Peninsula, and it's full of cocaine, and it's got a it's got a uniform on it's got a uniform an American uniform in it like in a glass case. You <laughs> <coughs> really literally, and then and then now we find out here's this dude, uh, Carmelo Vasquez Gomera. Uh, I'm sorry, Carmelo Vasquez Guerrero. Yeah, uh, getting caught and released, like you know in three different countries. So it's, I mean... So how do you put the pieces together with your experience? My, uh, I will not say at this time. You just trying to be real mysterious or what? Well, I mean, I know that I am mysterious, but yes. I don't have, I don't have all of the pieces, but I will say that uh, elements of, elements, it appears that elements of the intelligence network uh, industry are mm-hmm. knee-deep in the drug trade. Mm-hmm. Along with members of the New York Stock Exchange, mm-hmm. including the president, because there's that picture, of course, of him right. embracing the the leader of FARC mm-hmm. and getting him to, um, you know, saying, you need to invest in the New York Stock Exchange. And they get their cronies in other parts of society, including the religious community, mm-hmm. to stand against legalizing the drugs because that would interrupt that kind of graft, right? Sure. I mean, there's a lot of money to be made. <clears throat> One of the things I mentioned about Afghanistan was that... You know, I'm certainly no friend of the Taliban, but the uh, when we invaded, uh, they you weren't allowed to you weren't allowed to grow poppy seeds for the most part in Taliban-controlled areas. It varied from district to district, but mm-hmm. that was generally the rule. Um, once we invaded, the uh, uh, the price of of heroin shot up like ninety percent. You know, just in days. So. Um, I don't know. Hmm. Well, uh, we need to do a show on that airport, what, Venice Airport. Venice Airport, yeah. Hoffman Hoffman Aviation Airport. I think. Yeah, and Hopsicker is that the gentleman's name? Yeah, Daniel Hopsicker. Mm-hmm. We we need to have a show on that. Yeah. Um, I've got one that uh, it's one of these strange stories that the more you read it, the more you struggle to figure out how you respond to it. Which I always find those stories very interesting. Yeah. Where it's not as obvious as the end of your nose and your face. How you look at it, so it's interesting. I, I always, I always wonder how those stories sort of make it through the maze, right? In the first place, you know, right? Usually, because most editors have an agenda left, right, yeah, one or the other, yeah. It's all, it's also pre-chewed most of the time. Well, the, it, 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 this this story will take an angle, which becomes apparent not initially, but over time. Okay, and it, it provides you something interesting. I guess I should get on with it. Yeah. Religious group calls Glenn, calls out Glenn Beck's warped gospels launches ad campaign. Uh, from another news source calls the raw story. Um, when Glenn Beck attacks Christianity, some just see red. Others, they spy opportunity. Dan Nejfelt, a communications associate with the advocacy group Faith and Public Life, has been high on Beck's smear list ever since his group began running uh, Christian radio ads quoting scripture as a way of encouraging believers to stop paying attention to the right-wing Fox News personality. Wow, awesome. The group, which says their ads are sponsored by over 100,000 members nationwide, has gone so far as to target their ads for every city Beck is visiting this summer. Wow. Long-time Glenn Beck advertiser Goldline... Oh, sorry. 
something different. Their efforts have been getting uh, Beck's goat in a big way. In recent days, he's even played their ad on his radio program and increased the ferocity of his rhetoric against Christians who see poverty, war, climate change, and economic tyranny as core social ills. But to Nezfeld, it's just a shorter, it's just a greater shot at exposing faith in public life to the very audience they hope to reach. Believers duped into buying Beck's warped gospel. Not only are you wrong, the vast majority of people of faith know that you're wrong, Nezfeld said, lobbying his words directly at Beck in an exclusive interview with Raw Story. We're going to keep doing what God tells us to do. We'd appreciate it if you'd stop doing what you're doing. Wow. The conversation took place following a recent exploration by Raw Story into Beck's latest assault on the teachings of Christ. Beck claimed in the second such attack since March that, quote, liberation theology is the driving force behind Christian efforts to help the poor and make peace among men. And that, what? Uh, and that President Obama is a secret subscriber to such a philosophy, which he thinks has become the front for humanity's evils. After his first assault on Christianity in March, numerous religious leaders stood up to the host in the media, calling him out for a fundamental misunderstanding of Scripture. We're going to have these moments of opportunity, like Glenn Beck going after social justice, Nezfeld said. People can counter Beck's warped gospel by organizing and finding people to help spread our message. We say we're tired and sickened by a lot of the attacks on faith and the abuse of faith by extremist pundits. In a media advisory put out the same day as Ross Story's exploration of Beck's gospel, Faith in Public Life says, Beck has frequently used his television and radio programs to distort the Christian commitment to social justice, a central principle of Christianity rooted in biblical values and also emphasized in diverse religious traditions. In March, the host urged his listeners to leave their churches if pastors talked about social or economic justice. Even after prominent clergy from across the faith and ideological spectrum refuted his arguments, Beck has continued his smear campaign by equating social justice with Marxism and Nazism. Would you support a leader who said Jesus' teachings can lead to Nazism or who attacks Christian pastors for preaching the full gospel? Then why do so many Christians tune in to Glenn Beck, the ad asked. Beck also recently alleged that the Jewish uh, concept of the common good led to the Holocaust, saying, This is exactly the kind of talk that led to the death camps in Germany. Faithful America is airing the ad on Christian stations to reach viewers and listeners who frequently tune into Beck's programs. While Beck may think he speaks for Christians, thousands have signed petitions rejecting his views and expressing their outrage. The ads are part of Faithful America's Driven by Faith, Not by Fear campaign, an effort to counter the fears, lies, and hateful rhetoric of extremist pundits in the Tea Party. The group is uh, distributing bumper stickers and accepting donations uh, on their website. It says, Faith in Public Life, and I, I won't read all of this, but Faith in Public Life takes a direct approach to countering Beck by correcting blatant misrepresentations on Christ's teachings. They hope to attract a large community of Christians who will defend the cornerstones of their faith. People have been working for social justice for a long time, Nezfeld explained. This isn't something that cropped up in talking points last week. This is a centuries-long commitment, and not just in the Christian community. Along comes this Glenn Beck character and tries to paint this very sacred concept uh, as though it was hatched by the Nazis or Marxists. It was kind of like such a foundational insult to our faith that we felt we just had to respond. It's not just faithful Americans, people across the country. It's a cause for outrage. I'm glad to be a part of helping it to channel it and stand up and say, no, you're wrong. But what you're doing is wrong, and we're not going to stand for it. Now, um, they 
I'm, I'm not going to read the rest of this, but let me just point out a few things that they, they sort of promote here. Mm-hmm. Um, now like, for example, they say to worship God and obey God involves loving your neighbor. Loving your neighbor involves more than just praying for people and being kind. We need to bring about conditions on earth for people to flourish. Trying to turn society into a place where needs are met are completely in accordance with what God commands. To love your neighbors yourself is part and parcel of that. Okay, and then they get into some of their positions to accomplish that, such as compassionate immigration reform, uh, also universal health care, they say, are in line with Christ's teaching. Everybody deserves to get the health care they need. Okay, so they go on to more and more of this. So The whole those, thing, all of that is insane. I mean, Glenn's position and uh, the other people's. Exactly. It's Thank all, you. I, I, <laughs> those, are, those are two extreme positions right there. I know. It's like, it's like watching... Uh, never. Oh, well, I don't mean. No, this is what I, th- I thought. With a few moments to comment on this, and I don't mean to read between the lines on them. But as you read these kind of things, they they are countering appropriately, I think, some of his issues um, with government projects yeah. to be able to accomplish Christ's mandate. Now, the, you know, some people probably think, well, y'all don't get on the left enough. Y'all don't talk about Obama and these kind of things. You know, some people think we're big leftists because we focus on. What the religious the community struggles with yep. the most. Yep. But the fact is here, you've, you've got a group here that makes some good points, but then they say big government programs are the way to accomplish Christ's mandate. And, and the sad thing is, where, where are the people who are saying, yes, compassion, justice, economic justice, all these things are important, but the government is the last place, for, one, that has the mission for it, and two, has the capability or competence to do it. I, I, like That's part of the problem with America. You've got two extreme cases here. Both that I think are off the mark, way off the mark. Like that's crazy. And and also to me, it's what it's what creates artificial divisions in America. Sure, you're going to have. I guarantee that there's a bunch of people going on. Well, if that's what Christians believe, I guess I believe it too because I love Jesus. And, and they listen to Glenn Beck, and they're wandering around, their head full of fluoride. They don't know what to believe. You know, when I talk to anybody, left, right, whatever. That are that that you know believe in God, some measure of the relationship with Him, mm-hmm. and you say you know we really should care about people who have had misfortunes, hard time, people take advantage of, people haven't gotten justice. I never see anybody debate that, but when you start saying, well, this political party is the one to do it, or we get a government program, or we get some bureaucrats to do it, that's where everybody splits up and parts company. Mm-hmm. Is when you start doing that, and if you take people in communities. People don't care left, right, whatever. They just get in and help their neighbors. And that's yep. where it creates this artificial thing that stymies things that really need to be done. Mm-hmm. And i I got to think that there are spiritual powers that try to do that, and then there's human henchmen uh, in the political front and other groups that also work with them to try to stymie common sense well-being. Mm-hmm. I know. It's so, like, I don't know what, it's it's like watching two Two crazy people fight each other with sticks or something. That article. Yeah. I mean, ex- well, I mean, you know, I'm sure reading that, and I've heard Glenn Beck talk about some of the stuff. Mm-hmm. Some of the things that you and I have said, you know, we're regular attenders of our church uh, about caring about other people's needs and things like this, or people who are being tortured or people who are incarcerated without any kind of justice. He would say, "Well, those guys are just uh, these Marxist extremists. Run them out of here. They're not part of your church." Okay, but then well, you, the day that Glenn Beck is deciding whether or not I belong to part of my church is well, the the day that people listen to listen to Glenn Beck on whether or not I'm part of their church is the day that I find a new church. Well, I know, if, but if you I know, have people coming up to me going, "Well, I heard what Glenn Beck had to say, and you really need to we we need to censor you at church." Well, 
I, I, clearly, I'm in the wrong church. Well, there's a lot of influence, a lot of churches. But on the other well, side, there's a lot of other churches that would think, how could you be a good Christian and not vote for the Democratic Party and the government health care program and these other kind of things? How could you love Christ and believe in you know Sermon on the Mount and do that? Mm-hmm. Where, where they've totally merged the government and our call to our neighbor as one. Which is ironically the same thing the Dominionists do, generally from the right. Yeah, it's the same thing. Government is the hammer that they fight over mm-hmm. to push their ideology on another person, rather than just saying, "Let's go follow Jesus." Yeah, let's go. Let's not. Let's leave the hammer down. Let's, let's just leave an open guy hand. That, let's, that guy over there needs a house. Let's go build him a house instead of waiting around for the government to do subsidies and. Yeah, let's let's yeah. win some cultural war. Yeah, I know. You know? It's nuts. How about an armistice? Lay down your arms and just go rebuild. Yeah. I wonder if this stuff happens in other, in in Christian culture in other countries. I think a lot less so. Yeah. A lot less so. And, well, first of all, I'm presuming, like, free democratic cultures. Yeah, you know? I mean, you know, China, they're worried about getting their head chopped yeah, off. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, like, well, Christians in Iran, probably. Yeah. But you know what? I bet you they do these same kind of things just quietly in their own neighborhoods. Yeah. I bet you they they do what needs to be done quietly. And, in fact, a lot of those things, you know, uh, even where there's some hostility to Christians, there's some neighborhoods where they'll do bad things to Christians. There's some of them where the locals have multi-generational relationships with people to their face. Mm-hmm. And it's only the guys at the top, the the top heads that mm-hmm. try to get the hate going. Yeah. You know? Yep. So, but, I, yeah, I think America here is one It's it almost has become a joke. Almost yeah, in the way we do, except people yeah. are harmed by it. You got a story? Sir? I'll get off my soapbox. No, that's a good that's a good soapbox. Gosh, there's so many things. Do we want to hear about how uh, uh, the new revenue source for the British government are dormant bank accounts, or do we want to ha- hear about how the NSA falsified intercepted communications in the Gulf of Tonkin? Oh, the so no, no, no contest. contest. NSA. Yeah, this is one that we've talked about at length here. Right. Um, uh, really, the news story isn't that the, the the NSA falsified the intercepted communications. That's that much has been on record since uh, 2001. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is actually this is actually uh, discredited intelligence uh, that helped. Well, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee released more than 11,000 1,100 pages of previously classified Vietnam era transcripts that show senators of the time sharply questioning whether they had been deceived by the White House and the Pentagon over the 1964 Gulf of Tonkin incident. If this country has been misled, if this committee, this Congress, has been misled by by pretext into a war in which thousands of young men have died and many more thousands have been crippled for life and out of which their country has lost prestige, moral position in the world, the consequences are very great. Senator Albert Gore Sr. of Tennessee, the father of the future vice president, said in March 1968 in a closed session of the Foreign Relations Committee. Um, The article concludes, Robert J. Hanyak, a retired NSA security agency, uh, national security agency historian, said Wednesday in an interview that there were doubts, but nobody wanted to follow up on the doubts, perhaps, because... They felt they'd gone too far down the road. <laughs> yeah. Um, Mr. Hanyak concluded in 2001 that NSA officers had deliberately falsified intercepted communications in the incident to make it look like the attack on August 4, 1964 had occurred, although he 
he said they acted not out of political motives, but to cover up earlier errors. So, oh. many historians say that President Johnson might have found reason to escalate military action against North Vietnam, even without the Gulf of Tonkin crisis, uh, and that he apparently had his own doubts. Historians note that a few days after the supposed attack, he told George W. Ball, the Undersecretary of State, um, blank, those dumb, stupid sailors were just shooting at flying fish. So not even Johnson believed. Hmm. Uh, and they were shooting blanks, according to you, sir? No. Oh, that was a euphemistic uh, blank. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, and who cares? What about 50-something thousand dead, American dead, That's because it, of that? That's it, man. I, I remember... 300-plus thousand injured. I remember visiting the Vietnam, uh, a mobile version of the Vietnam War Memorial mm -hmm. uh, as a 16-year-old, and I was just so overcome with emotion. I just cried for hours over it. all these dead people, all these dead, mm -hmm. all these dead Americans who were, you know, just a year or so older than I am. Mm -hmm. I was, many of them, who went there and... Um, who all went over there apparently now because um, President Johnson had a political axe to grind. And you and, and I are coming to a sneaking suspicion that the other wars as well, too, mm -hmm. can be traced the same way. Yep. Uh, I, I thought it was in incredibly, incredibly honest. I don't know how this possibly slipped into the New York Times, which is where this right. is. But uh, 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 Robert Hanyuk, we ought to have him on to talk about this yeah. sometime. Uh, he said that there were doubts, but nobody wanted to follow up on the doubts, mm -hmm. perhaps because they felt they'd gone too far down the road. I mean, that's just the worst. Right. That's like Pontius Pilate, mm -hmm. basically. Well, everybody's riled up. It would really cause a scene if if I stopped this innocent man being executed, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, I don't know. You know, we're not trying to say that these men died in vain or diminish their sacrifice at Vietnam. No, I... I the I best way to honor it is to be able to expose the true culprits mm -hmm. that led to their sacrifice and to honor them. Mm -hmm. That's the best way we could... You know, you can carry a flag, you can salute, you can do all these other kind of things, and that's all fine. But the best thing is if you can expose these people that did this and find who the real enemies are, mm -hmm. that's the best way to honor our men and women who've given their lives. Yeah. That includes in the current war. Gosh, it's it's just it's so sad, man. It just mm -hmm. drives me crazy. Mm -hmm. you Even know? Uh, what you Tillman. know. Yeah, I know. Um, can I share something real quick? We're just mm -hmm. about ready to leave. Um, I can't. I don't have time for the story. I got through one whole story today, but mm -hmm. um, check out uh, Drudge had a link beginning of this week uh, to the Washington Post article. It's a series called "The Hidden World: Growing Beyond Control" mm -hmm. about our huge uh, secrecy empire. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, nobody knows things. how big it is. It's right? sixteen parts. It was a two-year study done, but just some statistics, just to let you chew on. Uh, an estimated 854,000 people, nearly one times as many people as live in Washington, D.C., hold top-secret security clearances in the U.S. That's just top-secret. Now, it's astronomically more when you include the secret clearances, mm -hmm. okay? You know, I, I think of Robert Hyde when we talked about, you know, he said that a lot of people are saying we're, we're afraid of slipping into a police state. Mm -hmm. And he said, no, we are in a police state. And in a police state, you have a major percentage of your population being involved in the secret, secrecy, secret investigation, you know, mm -hmm. uh, spying on people, well, stuff like people that, like East Germany. The only people who don't have Germany. top secret clearances are probably you and I. 
Oh wait. <laughs> well, I'm I'm close to that, but I think that's just that's in my past on that kind of thing. Yeah. But um, basically, the the article, if you all get a chance to look at it, goes into this overwhelming system that is out of control. Nobody even knows it's stated there, and it's so big that it can't even stop real terrorism because it's so incompetent and so power hungry. Yeah. And well, money hungry. Well, it's a good thing that we have the FBI to rile up local citizens. Well, somebody that's else to rile you up is Murphy can tell you how to contact us at Future Quake. Future Quake Radio Broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Sorry, i got to go, bud. Yeah, okay. Come back next week for another great show. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Ciao. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. Quake, quake.